What's up, podcast world? Chad Belding back at you with another episode of This Life Ain't For Everybody. Hopefully you're starting to figure out what we mean by that, that it doesn't matter what you do. The, you know, life is all about getting to know different people from different walks of life, diversifying your network and uh, accepting people for who they are, understanding their story, where they came from, their roots, their beginnings and where they how they've gotten to where they've got today. And we take a lot of pride in all of the locations we visit through our travels for hunting and fishing and the outdoor lifestyle through banded and the foul life and everything that we do. And along the way, we've got to run into a lot of different people, a lot of different walks of life. And we've always talked about how hunting is exactly that. It's the common denominator that brings all these different walks of life together. And I have a lot of different people in this country that I know um, because of the mallard duck, because of the wild coyote and through our travels. I've, uh, I've been intrigued by a lot of different individuals and their story. So that's pretty much what, you know, the theme of this life ain't for everybody is. It doesn't mean that we live a life that you can't and that we get up earlier than you and we be damned if you think you can do it. We know you can do it. We don't, everything that we do is nothing special by any means, especially compared to like a neurosurgeon or our military fighting for our freedoms across the country or across the sea. And, um, you know, we, we, we're very humbled by the people that we get to meet. And today's guest is no difference, but before, no different. But before I get to today's guest, I wanted to remind everybody to go to NAWTC.com and get signed up for the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships, 14 regions across America and Canada. $300 gets you entered for your chance to qualify and win $50,000 cash money. $50,000 all archery all the time. 2019 North American Whitetail Championships brought to you by Bone Collector. Like I said, $300 gets you entered. And when you do enter, you get a prize package already valued at more than $300 with a Gator Tumbler Cup, a Tacticam, broadheads, sights, accessories for your bow. It's worth it, guys. It's a no brainer, no problem to get signed up. NAWTC.com, North American Whitetail Championships. 14 regions across America and Canada. And again, brought to you by our friends at Bone Collector, Booger Bottom, Georgia, Michael Waddell, T-Bone, Nick Munt, the entire crew down there in Georgia, supporting deer hunting, supporting conservation, supporting this outdoor lifestyle that we're all humbled by, that we all take very, very seriously. And we're going to do what it takes to keep it going for generations to come. And this North American Whitetail Championship is just that. Today's episode is also brought to you by our friends at Elk Ridge Knives, the in my opinion, the best knives in the world. They stay sharp, they hold their edge, and we use a knife for everything. It doesn't matter if you're building a blind, it doesn't matter if you're processing, butchering, cooking, you always have to have a, a dependable knife, a sharp blade, a sharp edge in your arsenal. So we depend on Elk Ridge and you know, we love to cook. You know, we love to eat wild from their culinary sets to their skinners, to all their pocket knives, their fully knives, everything they make is top notch. And like I said, America stay sharp, always be ready to cut that meat and eat that protein, stay healthy out there. And finally, last but not least, Mojo Outdoors, Mr. Terry Dem and Mike Morgan 
everybody down there in Monroe, Louisiana. Thank you so much for your continuous support of everything we do here at Banded, the foul life. This life ain't for everybody. Jargon duck calls. We're so proud to be associated with an iconic brand like Mojo Outdoors. And there's nobody finer than Mr. Terry Denman. All of his experiences in the outdoor world, everything he's accomplished, you would never know sitting next to that man, what he's done, the money he's made doesn't matter. It's about his character, the people he surrounds himself with and the brands that he's built. He's an engineer by trade. He caught on to something special with the spinning wing decoy. He patented in 1999 and the rest is history. Here we are 20 years later, the 20 year anniversary of Mojo Outdoors, what Terry Denman and the crew have done has been simply amazing. Whether you agree with them or not, one thing is for sure. They have gotten a lot of people into duck hunting and kept them into duck hunting by the way ducks react to them. So if that's all you got to believe in, that's enough right there. If we're going to get new people involved in this sport because of the power of what ducks do over a spinner, then so be it. Mojo Outdoors, thank you so much again for your continued support. Let's get on today's episode. This life ain't for everybody. My guest today is somebody that isn't known across the country as a quote unquote celebrity or a quote unquote, you know, somebody that you're going to Wikipedia and find. And that's what's so cool about life is that there's everyday life going on that we have no idea that's being lived out there. And when you stop and pump the brakes just for a second and slow down and say, damn, man, this dude's living an unreal life and he's accomplishing all this shit. He's got a great family. And then you dig a little bit deeper and peel a little bit more levels or, or layers of that onion back. And you're like, holy shit, look what this guy can do. And that's what fascinates me about life is the humility of it, that it's not always somebody up there going raw, raw, check this out. I can do this. And we've been on this theme of mixed martial arts and defense and fighting and, and, and judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And you, you met Kelly Parati from Conviction MMA. You met Zach Rubo, Matt Pandola. Aaron Pandola, Joey Gilbert is in another part of fighting with boxing. And there's so many different forms and disciplines of fighting and mixed martial arts and defending yourself. And I've gotten so intrigued by the one that we're going to discuss today. You've heard us mention it here before with Kelly and Zach, but my guest today's name is Neil Fincher, F-I-N-C-H-E-R. He lives in Reno. He moved to Reno to go to college, I believe. We're going to get into his story today. So without further ado, my main man, Neil Fincher, how are you today, brother? Doing great, Chad. Thanks for having me. So you, you've you been asked to come onto this podcast so many times by me, and it's always kind of, well, I've never done one. I don't know what it is. And it's, 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 it's not science. You know what I mean? I've always just told you it's just chilling out. But what what I was wanted to do is I just wanted, I I talked to Mike Stoker last week about, you know, his life and what he does. And it's completely different from what you do. There's a lot of similarities, obviously. The first thing that I've always talked about when I mention you is your age. And I, and, and, and the reason I do it is because when I look at you, I'm like, you're my age. Like you, you think I would think right now you're in your early forties and you're not, you're 56, 58, April 16th. April 16th. So you just turned. Happy birthday. Thank you, Thanks for the invite. Did it get lost in the mail? Was there a big party? <laughs> no big party. Throw. I'm going to no, have to talk to your wife about this, but you're 58 years old and you, you're in unbelievable shape. You stay in shape. And the more that I see people that are approaching their 60s, and we talk about some of the individuals on the show all the time, it's like, life is like 58 is young where when I was 15 or 20, 25, when my dad turned 40, I'm like, I think I was 18 when my dad turned 40. And I was like, man, that's old. And then I'm, <laughs> I'm over 40 now and it's young. And now you're 58 and it's young. 
you're 15 years older than I am and you doing everything that I'm doing probably at a higher level. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but what is the secret? Is it, is there a secret or is it just the passion for life that's kept you grounded and kept you, is it a routine? What, what, what would you say has got you to where you can be in the shape that you are mentally, physically, your psyche, everything that you have going on. And, and, and as you're approaching your sixties, has things changed or what keeps you here? Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting because it's it's nothing that I've ever put a lot of thought to. I I I've just always been that guy. I, I always tell people they say, well, how do you how are you in the shape that you're in? I say, you know what, just stay on that fifty percent of the side every week that you're exercising, and I've always done that ever since I was a little kid. Never thought much about it, but I, you know when people ask me what is it that you do, I do I mostly exercise. You know whether that's in martial arts or you know, going for a hike or riding my mountain bike or playing disc golf, whatever it may be. I, that's always been my thing. It's just, I just keep moving. And that, that seems to do a pretty good job. So what do you mean 50%? Tell me exactly what you mean by that. Um, at least 50% of your week. So there's seven days in a week, you know, for at least four of those days, you're doing something. And if you're, if you're a person who's always you, you don't want to get on that side of ex not exercising where you're like, oh my gosh, I have to exercise. You always want to be saying, oh my gosh, I didn't exercise today. You know, so you're always trying to get that in because you want to, you know, how, how it makes you feel and how, how good it is for you. So that's what I tell people, you know, if you want to start getting in shape and turning your life around and just trying to be, you know, fitness is obviously a big part of it. You see very successful people and they're not fit. And, and you know that just crushes them because they're so disciplined in so many aspects of their life, but they can't stay fit. And it's just another discipline that they need to, to acquire. So I just say, you know, keep exercising, make sure you're on the 50% more that week that you do exercise every day than the less part. And then you're always going to be thinking to yourself, man, I got to get out and do something today instead of like, oh my gosh, I got to get out there and do something today. Do you think that you would look the way you look or you would be saying the words that you're saying right now if you didn't eat the diet that you eat though? And I'm not talking about the non-meat part of it and we'll get into that in a minute, but let's just say a disciplined nutritional habit. <laughs> Uh, you hear Matt talk about it all the time, but is that a big part of it? Cause you're right now, you're saying just work out three and a half days a week to get to that 50% of seven, which I completely, I love the analogy. Gosh, dang it. I didn't get my workout in today. I didn't get my steps in today. I didn't get my breathing techniques in today. There's, there's, you can go on a 40 minute walk and, 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 and practice your breathing techniques and your systematic breathing and get a really good workout, a really good caloric burn and, and do things during that workout. Maybe you up it with going up a hill. Maybe you get into a slow jog. Maybe you do a couple sprints or intervals, get your heart rate up, bring it back down. But you're very disciplined when it comes to diet. Now, I'm not talking about the non-meat part. I'm just talking about, let's just say that you ate meat, fish or chicken or whatever. Is that a huge part of it, of, of being 58 and being able to roll like you do still? I, I think so. I think so. I've, I, uh, you know, started when I was a kid, I pretty much ate everything. And, and, and exactly, we're not talking about meat here. We're just talking about any types of food. And I pretty much ate everything I want. And, and I still, to some extent, do. I, I, I'm not a meat eater, but everything else I eat, I just tend to try to choose things that are more um, created more healthfully. You know, so if I were a meat eater, I'd certainly be eating organic meat or fresh kill you know, from the field. But, uh, I think w w when I kind of changed my diet, that's one of the things that, um, was the big change was just eating more healthful. You know, I always look at ingredients. I've, if, you know, they always, that one of those things they say is if, if you don't wouldn't name your child that don't eat it. Right. So that's just one of the things I've done. And, um, just eating more naturally and, and just healthy foods. That seems to be the key for me. 
But do you think that being at 58 years old now, do you ever see yourself taking a bite of like the most lean elk meat out there? Like there's guys that stay in really good shape that, you know, are really getting into this lifestyle of eating off the land, living off the land, eating wild meat. Do you ever see yourself going, F it. I'm, I'm just going to eat one. Not, not engulfing and just like being, Oh my God, I'm just going to keep feeding myself. But to me, you're missing out. Does it ever cross your mind like that? Very, yeah, that's a great question. And, and I'm obviously asked that all the time. It's, um, you know, w- as far as the meat thing goes, I, this was like, I've done, I've done it a couple of times in my lifetime where I stopped eating meat and in 19, around 1990 is the last time that I ate meat. And I would certainly, I'll tell you what, if we're out in the desert, you and I, and things get a little rough, anything that passes me is going to get ate. Right. <laughs> right. But you know, right now I have a choice and I, I choose not to eat it now, but I, if I were going to eat meat, it would certainly be, it would have to be fresh kill or it'd have to be raised properly for me to eat. And that's basically the reason I stopped eating meat in the first place. It was very difficult in 1990 to go, you know, you could, you know, to go find the, the kind of meat that you would want to eat if you weren't a hunter, which I wasn't a hunter. But, um, if, if I were, that, that certainly probably would have changed things. So you're saying right now that if you would have grown up in a lifestyle of maybe hunting outdoors, your dad or whoever your uncle gets you into it, and you were introduced to that high protein, natural, low fat, lean diet, let's talk, you know, venisons or elk or moose or stuff like that. There are game that hold a little bit more fat content or a little bit more oils in them. You think right now you might be in, you know, eating meat, you're not saying like, oh, that's unhealthy. Don't do it. Like, it's just a matter of how you were raised a little bit. Yeah, definitely not. It's the, I don't think it's unhealthy at all to eat meat. I just think it's unhealthy to eat unhealthy meat. And, and back when I became a, a vegetarian, this last stint, which like I said, was 1990, that was exactly it. I was sitting there at home. I can tell you the story of you. It's really yeah. quick. I was yeah. sitting at home and just making some chicken. And it got it from some local grocery store and I'm sitting there whooping it up and it just wasn't fresh and I smelt it. And then I'm just like, you know, I, I finished cooking it and my wife came home for dinner and I'm just like, I just, that kind of smelt really funky to me. And uh, I'm just not going to eat tonight. And that was about 1990. And that's all it took for you to say, never again, am I going to eat meat? Not necessarily never again, but for that moment, that's exactly what it was. Fish? Because fish can always, even though, even when you get fresh fish, it's going to have that fishy smell. But the the, the natural fats and, and nutritional value in salmon meat, just for example, I mean, the you know, are you totally against salmon? I'm not a fish eater either, just because I kind of just shut everything down, and 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 the same reason that too, right? You know, the fish I was getting, I wasn't, you know, I, I'm born and raised in Florida. We'd fish in the canals and fish in the in the uh, brackish water, you know spillways and catch fresh fish and eat it all the time. But, you know, the fish I was eating here in Nevada, I wasn't fish I was catching. So I just kind of said, you know, I'm just not going to eat anything for right now. And it was just a momentary thing. And then it just turned into this, this is my life. So does it make it tough to keep this kind of diet creative, Neil? Like if you're a vegetarian, which I'm, I, I'm not, I would never go like, you're a dumbass for being a vegetarian. You're an idiot for being a vegan. I don't care one way or the other. I mean, I eat meat, but I do agree with you hundred percent that it, 
I mean, I know there's going to be times where I'm going to go have some shitty chicken wings or a piece of meat that we didn't kill. And I've almost gotten to the point to where I've gotten so like critical of other people's preparation of meat, you know, what they do with it, what, either they buy it or they kill it, how they preserve it, how they freeze it, how they package it, how they, whatever it is, if they're not vacuum sealing it, is it freezer burn? I get so critical on it that I'm like almost where it will, if I cook it, I'll eat it. So that's why you're always seeing me probably throwing all of the shindigs or the entertainment part of it, because I really trust the crew here to do the meat right not to say that we're better than anybody it's just that mindset but i'm wondering like with a vegetarian lifestyle it's different than a vegan lifestyle way different but the vegetarian lifestyle does it get hard to to keep it creative to keep it out of the box to keep it or is it is it that mindset that you have to where eating is not that important to you even though it is even though you have to eat to survive and have water and all that even though I cook a ton, even though I, I love, you know, being creative and thinking out of the box and I take a lot of pride and go, man, check out this duck recipe, check out this, what we just did, this moose, this moose stroganoff, we did it, whatever. It's not that important to me to go and be like, oh my God, I got to eat. I'm just going to golf and down. Like when I get a sushi meal and I'm like treating myself, I love good sushi. But my mindset is like, I don't go through the day thinking about how I'm going to go get this big meal and I got to have a big meal to survive all of the time, Right. I think once you get to that point in life, it gets a lot easier. And is that what you got to, to where eating, you were so, you were, you were establishing yourself in your professional career, your family career, you're working out, you're training. Did eating just become kind of like on, on the back burner where it wasn't important? So it didn't matter if you ate meat or not. Yeah, definitely. It, it, you know, eating to me is a sustenance thing, but there's nothing better than the meal. You know, and if I'm here hanging out with you and everybody and everybody's chowing down on whatever we're all eating, it's, it's all about the get together. So, you know, the times I go to restaurants and stuff like that, yeah, I don't, I don't miss, I don't miss the meat products. Um, and the vegetarian stuff is not boring to me because I'm pretty, I'm a pretty simple person. You know, if you go into my lunch bag today, you're going to see a raisin bread with peanut butter on it. And it's there five days a week. Some days I eat it. Sometimes I go and eat with my buddies and but I'm a real, real simple person. And, and food's always been that way to me too. So, you, you know, even if I were eating meat, it would probably be like, grill that piece of chicken, make a salad, done. You know, I got my protein, I've got my greens, done. You know, so. And I think that's true because people see, you know, with what we do with the cooking and the relationships that we have within the industry, we're always like, and you see it on the shows that you watch of ours of people are like, man, all you guys, it seems like all you guys do is eat. You, you guys should be big, fat, bad. And I'm like, that's, that's my point is what you just said, the camaraderie, that, that, that culture that you're getting around food, which happens in Europe, which happens in Asia, there's a lot of camaraderie and socializing that happens because of food. There's no doubt about it. Backyard barbecues, Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, everybody around the table there, the, the socialization and the camaraderie is what I'm in it for. So when people see me going, look at this and look at this. That is a big part of it. Like, look how well this meal turned out. But I'm not sitting there with a huge heaping plate of food overflowing every time we cook like that. Never really. Like, it's almost like when I cook, and this is going to sound maybe stupid. I don't even know if this is possible, but it almost is like it fills my appetite or my, my you know, that desire to eat when I'm cooking it and I'm smelling it and I might do a little taste test on a, on a gravy or a tomato gravy or something or a pasta sauce and it, it suffices. 
it's cool. Like I've gotten to that point in my life to where it's like, I, people are like, aren't you going to eat? And I'm like, well, I had a, one of these, I cut a piece off and made sure that I was happy with it before I served it. I, I had a little spoonful of this. I might've took it, take a piece of really good provolone and wrap some prosciutto in it and, and eat that real quick and boom, I'm done. And it's almost like I don't need that whole part of sitting out at the big plate. It's all about that socialization and the culture that comes with it. And, but I think a lot of people are on the other end of the spectrum to where it's like, I'm going to eat a bunch of all of it and stuff myself. And you hear that a lot, like, man, I don't think I could fit another bite in me. And I, and I'm honest like that. I don't get full. I never get full. And I think that that's the, the deal is where I don't know if I could go vegetarian because I do love eating wild meat. I love preparing wild meat. And, but I'm wondering if it's worth a try to see and figure out the health benefits because a lot of people say it's not a healthy alternative lifestyle to be a vegetarian or a vegan because you have to have those proteins and you can get your proteins other ways obviously you're almost 60 and you're healthy as you know what so i don't know if it's worth trying it if it's not for everybody if you're eating the right meats is it even worth trying to be a vegetarian are there any benefits of being a vegetarian are there? Well, tell me, I mean, are there any benefits, the fat content? I'm, you're probably going to get a more fatty diet, not being a vegetarian, but vegetarian doesn't mean you don't eat cheese and dairy and that kind of stuff. So is there, what are the benefits of it? Yeah, that's an interesting. The last thing you said about cheese and dairy, that's one of the things. And, and when I became a vegetarian, that's one of the things I went to, I gravitated towards, you know, lots of cheese, lots of dairy. And I found that that you know, I, I shouldn't say I found, I just, in my mindset was, you know, well, you're kind of moving away from, you know, the, the kind of meats I was eating, you know, let's just say it's a ground beef from the grocery store or, or the, the cow I was eating from the grocery store, you know, marbled and, you know, all this things that aren't really natural, you know, the chickens, you know, I were eating were gigantic. Chickens aren't gigantic, right? So it, it heavily a lot of fat, a lot of cholesterol. So I kind of was moving away from that. And then also, you know, eating a lot of dairy. So now my diet pretty much consists of probably about not dairy 99.9% .9 of the time. Um, but I'll eat some eggs. And that's one of the things I've kind of allowed myself because I, uh, you know, now eggs are good for us. So I, I started eating eggs a few years ago a little bit more. And I really do enjoy that. But uh, as far as the meat goes, I don't think I don't think, I would never tell somebody, you got to stop eating meat. It's just it's terrible for you because I don't think it's bad for you. It's just not something I'm doing at this point in my life. And for the reasons I mentioned earlier, we just, I just felt like I wasn't getting healthy meat. And, you know, that's another problem too. If you're not a hunter, getting, eating healthy meat is very expensive. So it's not for everybody. So, I mean, there's really a, there's a, there's a, there's a tough road there. You know, if you, if you don't have the money to either, you know, to go and hunt, whatever that takes, or to go to these grocery stores and buy this, this meat that's healthy for you, what do you do? I mean, so a lot of people are in a predicament. You know, they would love to eat this way, but how do they? They live in the city. They can't go hunt. They can't go to Whole Foods and shop or, you know, fortunately stores like Walmart are even starting to carry more healthy stuff, but it's expensive. Very yeah, yeah. And if you look at some of these online meat services that have these monthly services where they deliver, or you can, you know, do all the cart. I mean, you look at your, your shopping cart when you go to checkout and you're like, Whoa, man, for some ribeyes and, and maybe some tri-tips. It's 
don't get me wrong. They're fed right. Those grass-fed beef and they're on feed for 500 days as opposed to 120 days. It's a different eating experience, especially if you know how to prepare it and get it to taste right and serve it at the correct temperatures. But you're right. It's it's so refreshing to me to take to hear a guy like you that doesn't hunt, that doesn't wasn't grown, you know, didn't grow up in a hunting culture, but you come out here to wild game feeds. Your wife eats wild game out here when she comes. She's not a vegetarian. Um, she, she, uh, uh, we, we can talk about that in a second, but it's refreshing to hear you say that. Like if you can't hunt and you don't have the money to become a hunter, more importantly, if you are a hunter, can you go out and consistently, you know, lure game or, or get game into shooting range and, and, and successfully harvest them, ethically harvest them and then process them or butcher them and process them and serve them. And to be that all around person, you know, that person that can do that male or female, I know a ton of females that can do it. I think that's awesome. I think it's refreshing to hear like, man, that that's a different way to live. That's a cool way to live. And maybe, maybe that's why you gravitate towards somebody like me is that you're seeing that done to where it's not just going out and going, man, we killed all these birds or we killed this big deer. That don't mean shit to me. People get mesmerized or they get so into that kill. Like, and I understand it's probably a maturing process through your younger years and growing up just like anything else in life. But I love hearing that, being a hunter is one way that you can go out and get natural, you know, quality, quality meats to get that protein in you. And you're saying that if you were a hunter, you'd probably be more likely to eat meat because getting, you know, good meats to eat at the store is one difficult and two, very expensive and hunting is expensive. So there, there's, there's a give and take in that, you know, like to, to be a hunter means you have the opportunity to do exactly what you're saying. So as a hunter, you need to open your ears and be like, that's what I'm in it for. That's the most important part of hunting. I don't like when I hear people say, man, I can't eat that. I won't eat that. When, especially when I know they're a hunter and I know that they're shooting the shit. And then I hear, you don't eat it. What? Have you even never had it done the right way? I've turned a lot of people the other way of being like, you're lying. That ain't duck. That ain't deer. And yeah, it is. My mom, she grew up in a hunting family, you know, with us, didn't grow up, but she raised us in hunting family with my dad. Then we had to trick her like, mom, try some of this sirloin. Then boom, mom, that's duck. And then she's spitting it out thinking because, but she ate the first 10 bites thinking it was sirloin. You know what I'm saying? So it's all a mental game to some people, but if you're a hunter and you don't eat what you kill, then I think that that's what you just said is like I said, refreshing because that's what this lifestyle means to me. And it's not just about me eating it. It's also about the many, you know, hundreds of people that we feed. We've done, we fed a lot of people, whether the homeless, friends, family, donating the meat, it doesn't matter. We, we, people, if wild game is prepared right, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. So it's kind of cool to hear you say that, but it just seems to me though, that as a man that is built like you and is as strong as you and stays in the shape that you are and has the ability to do some of the things that we're going to get into in a little bit. It seems to me like you should be, have to be, you better be, and you need to start being a meat eater. (laughs) And then you're like, no, that's not the case. I can do all of this with 1990 to 2000 is 10 years plus two. That's you're going on your 30 year anniversary of being, of having not one bit of meat put into your body. Yeah. That's amazing to me. Well, I've had, that's uh, that's over half of your life. Yeah, definitely over half of my life. It's coming up on that. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, and I have had some meat 
just inadvertently. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I would the other day. You know, and that's okay. You know, I'm not a, I, I'm not a militant about it, certainly. So somebody, you know, put something, like the other day I ordered a, it was a portobello mushroom burger. Well, the lady thought I meant portobello mushrooms on my burger. So I took that first bite and I was like, well, that's definitely meat. So, you know, it's not the end of the world for me. But uh, yeah, no, I, you know, I, like, like I said earlier, if, if push, you know, being a vegetarian to me right now is it's all about convenience, right? You know, we live in America. We've got everything available. You know, you, you know, I can go to the grocery store and I can shop for everything I need to, to, to maintain this diet. But, it, you know, as soon as push comes to shove, you know, like I said, you know, we're stranded somewhere and we need to eat and it's probably going to be an animal and I'll definitely eat it. You know, so, uh, you know, it's, it's being a vegetarian in America is it's definitely a convenience. So know? do you compare it to like being of eat, not say, I'm not saying like becoming dependent on alcohol or becoming a quote unquote alcoholic and then becoming sober. Cause that's different when it gets to that point. But if you drink and you socialize with alcohol or liquor or whatever, and you say, I'm going to take 30 days off. And then you go to that 30 days and I've done this. And I, there's a comedian out there, Bill Burr, that has a podcast. Well, he's my favorite comedian. He's my favorite comedian of all time besides Eddie Murphy. And he's on this deal where he's like at 150 days. But it started with just he wanted to do, I believe, 30 there like a month. And, you know, Joe Rogan and those guys do sober October where there's no any drugs that they choose or any alcohol at all. And then with Bill Burr, though, it turned into 60 and then it went 90. And then he's like, I'm going 150. Now he's going one year. He's 52 or 53, so he's five years younger than you. And now when I hear him talk, it's almost like there's a, there's a chance he's not going to drink alcohol ever again because now he's gotten to that threshold to where he thinks that he can go without it, to where now as a, a person that challenges yourself on a daily basis, which you have done in your life, is that what it got to, to where you're like, man, I've, I've made it a year. I'm never going to do it again. Did it start as something like, man, I'm just going to lay off the meat for a little bit? Because that's what he did. He's just like, I'm just going to lay off the booze for a little bit. I got a daughter now. My face is getting a little red and shiny and blotchy. And he didn't want to be that. And I, that's, that's good that you see that and you value life enough to be like, dude, I'm in my fifties now. I'm going to take some, you know, I'm just going to balance this out. Everything in moderation, whatever, balance it out. Like you're talking about at the beginning of this balance, have that balanced life. Is it kind of like that mindset to where you're like, man, I'm going to keep going. And then it just never stopped. Yeah, certainly. You know, like, yeah, I, like I said, you know, it was this, it was the chicken episode that made me stop eating meat for that moment. And it just continued on. And, and I think now at this point, um, I, I just don't eat meat right now because, um, I, I certainly could, but it, it you know, it's, if I started eating meat, then I'm going to be getting put in these situations where I'm at a restaurant and I'm not at, I'm at, you know, I'm not at Grateful Gardens. I'm at Chili's. And here we go. I'm having a burger at Chili's or wherever it may be. And I shouldn't say Chili's, but, you know, Anywhere. Any, any, it could be any place that they, they don't serve healthy meat. And, and to me, it's just I've kind of avoided it. But, you know, it, wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't hurt me to eat some. And I, I don't know. I may one day. Who knows? But I, probably not. It's been a long time now, and it's not a part of my life anymore. So how, how much is alcohol a part of your life to stay where you're at physically, mentally, emotionally, going into your... You're, you're almost 60. So it, traditionally, 62 was the year of retirement. You know, you worked as hard as you could. And then at 62, you started getting those benefits and that retirement and that Social Security and all of that. And you don't have that mindset. I would, I would bet a million dollars if I had a million dollars in a suitcase right here that you're 
you're not going to quit doing what you're doing in four more years. You're, you, you might slow down a little bit. You might take more time with your wife, who knows, but that mentality retirement doesn't sit with people of your mentality. I would guess that I'm assuming that that could be completely wrong, but alcohol occasionally I've, I've, I've been around you. I've seen you with a cocktail, but mainly a beer. Um, is it something to where you really discipline yourself on that your entire life? Has it ever gotten to where you go out and get hammered? Do you ever drink every night of the week? What, how has alcohol played a role in getting where you're at physically right now? That is a great question. Obviously when I was younger, uh, you know, when I started this diet I'm on and you know, when you're younger, let's say I was 28, you know, what was I 30? Right. Let's say I was 30 years old. Back then, your resilience to, to all kinds of things you can damage yourself with, whether it's too much exercise or too much eating, too much drinking, your, your tolerance is so high and your recovery is incredible, especially if you're fit. You know, that's an interesting thing about alcohol. The more fit you are, the more you recover quickly. Um, but yeah, at this, at this point in my life, I, I, you know, it's not that I don't imbibe too much and I'm a beer guy. You know, beer and bourbon, that's about it for me. A little bit of bourbon, mostly beer. But I'm to the point now that I know, you know, I know when, you know, if I have too many beers one night that the next day I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to feel as well as I want to feel and I'm not going to be able to do the things I want to do, you know, which is usually some kind of a physical activity. Um, a lot of mental stuff, obviously, too. So as far as the drinking goes, I, I'm certainly not against it. I think, uh, what are the prebiotics in beer? <laughs> you know, you got to like them. I think beer is healthy, healthy, you know, in moderation. And I certainly partake. And uh, yeah, as far as getting blasted and stuff like that, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll do, definitely do a little too much. But uh, I don't beat myself up for it. I just uh, know the next day I'm going to have I'm going to pay for it. So I just try to, you know, keep it you know, at a, a level that I can handle the next day. I so guess. growing up and you're in Florida and you, you make the transition West, this voyage West because of what you, do you come here for college? Yes. I was uh, born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, 18 years old, went to Florida state university for a couple of years, a geology major. Um, my, uh, mom and stepfather, they're living out West here. And my mom was encouraging me to come out here. And so, uh, they were down in Vegas. They didn't have a geology program here, but they did have Mackey School of Mines in Reno. So I came up here and, and got a degree in geological engineering. That's how I ended up here. And I met my lovely bride, Ellen, and college. Ge and geological engineering in Ellen. And then you say, I'm staying. I'm, I'm going to make my home here in Reno. And at that time, you're, you're what, you're 25? Yes, I, so I came here and I was 20 years old. So Ellen and I got married in 1987, but I knew as soon as I came here after about a year, I, I knew Reno was the place for me that, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable here with the seasons and the mountains and, you know, the outdoor activities. I like to ride my mountain bike. Like I said earlier, I, you know, I throw the disc a lot and used to throw it all kinds of ways back then, but now I just play disc golf, but I like the outdoors and I love, uh, I love the you know, as you know, being a Reno person, this is great. I feel like I'm a Reno person now. I've been here for most of my life. So I feel like a native Nevadan. And when you, when you come here, you're, you're up on the campus, which that, by the way, that campus is amazing now, isn't it? Well, I, I drove above it the other night up on North McCarran. I was like, God dang, man, it's beautiful, isn't it? Like they've done a great job as far as the aesthetics of the layout of, of University of Nevada Reno campus. You agree with that? 
I totally agree. Coming from Florida State University, which is a beautiful campus, I arrived here and, and, and just went to first day on campus walking around. I said, this totally reminds me of Florida State. And it's even better, though. It's beautiful. The, the old uh, quad that's there, you know, the design was, you know, I think it was uh, Thomas Jefferson. He designed like the first quad at University of Virginia. And that, that was kind of copied all over America. And that's why our quad looks the way it is with the buildings surrounding and it and still the big there. trees. And, yeah. then you, and then you have state-of-the-art buildings all over, especially on the north end. It's starting to be on the east side down along Evans. And you come up towards the football stadium. And, you know, our basketball team did very well. Historically, we've had a pretty strong football program. Our baseball program just beat the number two team in the country, Oregon State, twice last weekend. So last week, I mean. So there's a lot of good things going on on that campus. So you're on campus and where, where, you know, my, my big intrigue with you, obviously, where I haven't gotten much information out of you is Krav Maga. And so you are how tall? I'm five foot eight and some change. You know, and that's what short people do. They throw the change on there. <laughs> okay, you're five eight. I'm going to guess 171. One, I, I, I vary between 150 and 155. So I was way off because you got muscle. So I was thinking you're bigger, but you're, you're 155 pounds, five foot eight. And I've heard several people say I would never F with Neil. So, and that's coming from qualified people that are black belts that, that, that are, that are tied into that, that lifestyle of martial arts. Krav Maga was developed for the Israeli military as a form of defense that mixed several different forms of fighting, um, karate, judo, aikido, a bunch of those different ones. The part that I want to ask you, but I want to learn about Krav Maga, but the part that I always see when I, when I look at it or study it or, or through my findings is that they throw in the word realistic fighting. So to me, that's what I would want to learn. I told Zach that. I've told Kelly that. I talked to Matt about it today. Matt came up with a great idea. He's going to talk to you about it tomorrow. What, out of all of them, it seems to me like that's the one you'd want. Not all of us are going to be a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. We don't have 10 years to do that. Not that I wouldn't love that. What an accomplishment. Even a judo or a black belt or an MMA black belt, whatever it is, that's a lot of time. It's not everybody that's going to go and do that. But if I was going to pick one form of it, I would want to go with something that if I'm walking out of that bar and I'm vulnerable or I'm a lady walking through that parking garage at night and I'm vulnerable, it seems to me like this is the realistic one that I need, right? So is that fair to say? And, and, and talk to me a little bit about it. What, what is it, it? Why is it realistic? And why in the hell did you get so wrapped up into it? And as we go along with this, you're way wrapped up into it. So what, what is Krav Maga? Yeah, let, let me give you a little back history on, on my martial arts uh, kind of history of what I've done since a child, and that'll, it'll kind of wrap around how I ended up in Krav Maga. I was, uh, my brother and I went to the rec center in Fort Lauderdale where we used to play baseball, and we started a judo program there when we were little kids. I was probably maybe eight, and he was 10, or maybe seven and nine, something like that. So that's how we started. And judo was an Olympic sport back then, and that's why it was very popular. So you could find judo at any Y program, and it, w it was everywhere because it was, you know, it's an Olympic sport. So we, we did judo for a couple, three years maybe. And then uh, when I was about 16, 
um, a karate school opened up the road in Fort Lauderdale, and it was a, um, a Goju-Ru, Japanese-style karate, and I started in that program. And then when I went to uh, Florida State University, I, I didn't train in martial arts at all there. And when I came to the University of Nevada, Reno, um, I've had some friends that were... Um, I don't know. You know, you when you're doing things martial arts, you see and talk, and next thing you know, every you know everybody who's doing it around you. So I had some guys encourage me to get into Taekwondo, and being um, coming from Japanese disciplines, it's a really strange thing. But back then, you know, karate is Japanese, Taekwondo is Korean, and there's that whole Japanese-Korean, you know, back then you were closer to the Korean War, you were closer to, you know, the problems that these two countries had with each other. So obviously your instructors and the masters are telling you, oh, you don't do that karate, and the karate guys are saying, oh, you don't do that Taekwondo. So well, I was a karate guy, a judo guy, and then these guys, it took me about, uh, it took a, f a friend here about three years to get me to uh, go to the Taekwondo school um, that he was at. And so that's how I started uh, in Taekwondo here and um, got my degree to, to kind of further along the story. It was a black belt in Taekwondo and I started teaching full time. In uh, 1989, I was teaching full time. And one of the things I always have done is I've always been a person who wants, wanted to understand the fight. And all these things I did, they were, they were, they were, um, they were, they were really not about the fight. They were about teaching you how to kick and punch and some basic self-defense, but it was never about the fight. So I was always going to seminars. I'd go to, a, you know, a, an Arnis, you know, stick fighting class, and I'd go to a, a knife fighting class and just trying to learn different things that I could pass on to my students because we're very traditional. Taekwondo is an Olympic-style sport. Um, that's a big part of it. And then, you know, you're doing a lot of traditional katas and forms that really don't, it doesn't increase your ability to, to defend yourself. So I was always looking for these little things on the side, going to seminars and trying to bring this stuff back to teach to my students. Well, about the uh, mid-later 90s, um, we, we were getting a professional martial arts magazine at our school, and I was always, that was, always, that was my go-to place. I'm like, okay, let's read about different styles and what's going on, and all of a sudden, they did like a, three months in a row, I think it was three months in a row, they were covering Krav Maga, and I saw, I'm like, I didn't even know how to say it right? It, I'm like, whatever that is, I just started reading about it. And then I told uh, my partner, who was my Taekwondo instructor, I said, you know what, boy, I'm getting a real good feeling about this. And, and, and about what the, about the third month, they started talking about, hey, we're going to start a licensing program for Krav Maga instructors. So uh, I told my partner that I was going to fly down to LA, and that's where the National Training Center was. And I was going to watch some classes. So one weekend, got a plane ticket, Flew down there and I started watching classes on Friday and never stopped till I had to get back on the plane Sunday. And it was the most amazing thing. It was the most amazing martial arts I had seen as far as this is about the fight. And I was like, and I came back and I told my partner, I said, we, I found what I want to do. I, I, this is Krav Maga and it is about the fight. And that's how it started. When you say about the fight, is that where that turn or where when people when you read about it, when they say the realistic part about it, that's what you found? It's not about just, you know, uh, the a good form and holding your fist right and throwing a chop or a, or, a, or a punch or a kick, roundhouse kick, chop kick, whatever, front kick, whatever. You're like, 
man, if I'm going to get in a fight and, and I want to know about the fight, this, you saw this now, was it ripped off from Taekwondo and karate? It, it was, it was originated in Israel, right? So was, could you, could you see the similarities when you're in those classes Friday through Sunday down in Los Angeles at the world headquarters of Krav Maga or not the world headquarters, but is that the national headquarters? Is the world headquarters still in, in Israel? Um, the founder of Krav Maga, Emi, um, he, what happened was Darren Levine is a district, U.S., uh, uh, LA, a district attorney in L.A., and he was on a, he was on a, uh, in the early 80s, he went over to Israel with some other martial arts schools from L.A., and they're on a, an exchange program, and uh, they met Emi. And they, and they found out about Krav Maga then. So Emi, the founder of Krav Maga, his father, and I, I, I don't want to say this because I shouldn't know this, but I think it was, it was a European country. Let's just say that. Um, his father was the head of, of, of the uh, martial arts disciplines for the police, for the state. And so this is how Emi, as a child, learned his martial arts from his father. So his father was teaching cops how to defend themselves and, and what to do in certain situations. So Emi, they end up in Israel. Emi's, uh, they're, they're Jewish, Jewish family, Hebrew, and they end up in Israel. And then Emi's continuing to teach, you know, where his father taught him, and thus Krav Maga. And Krav Maga, the, the, those two words stand for contact combat. And so Emi eventually is... is he starts teaching Krav Maga to the Israeli forces. And, and what is interesting is, obviously, there's, the, you know, the, over in Israel, everybody has to serve in the military. So you have a certain amount of time you have to serve in the military. So you got to get these people in there. you got to get them ready to not only do all the other defend, the, the way they defend, but they also have to defend themselves in combat. And they, they obviously get, they get put in those situations more than we do as, in our military, right? They're really in that, in that area that they're, they're in. There's a lot of activity. So Emi had to teach them something that is not only, you can not only teach the men, women, but you have to teach to everybody. So you can't just teach it to big, strong guys who can pretty much do anything. You've got to teach it to everybody. So that's kind of what happened, and that's, that's why it's part of their, uh, their regiment in the military. So contact combat is their military knew because of their style of fighting or the, the, the skirmishes or the battles or the, the you know, the fights that they were involved in was more close, close quarters than say our military would be with our air power and the way that we execute when we're in theater. Is that what you're saying is that that, that Israeli army was more apt to be in something to where they needed to be able to use their hands more? I, I wouldn't say so. I would say, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. Here's an analogy. It's like, you've got a Krav Maga school here and you've got another traditional martial arts school right next door. You've got the Israeli military right here, and you've got the U.S. military on the other side. And, you know, what are they teaching their, what are they teaching their soldiers? What are those two martial arts schools teaching their students? One's teaching them how to fight. The other one's teaching them some self-defense techniques. But are they really teaching them how to use those in an actual situation? Um, there's, we can discuss this, but uh, there's, you know, there's ways of teaching people how to fight. There's ways of teaching people how to defend themselves in a fight. And that's what Krav Maga does. So I wouldn't say that, you know, um, you know, obviously all these, these militaries, they want to use weaponry. 
as far out as they can. And as they get closer and closer, you got to have different types of things to defend yourself down to the point where it's hand-to-hand combat. Or it's it's hand-to-hand against a knife. It's hand-to-hand against a bat, you know, a sword, a, a, a you know, the knife on the end of the gun. What is the bayonet? Mm-hmm. Whatever it may be. So um, Krav Maga just addresses that in the fight situation. That's how it's taught, and that's why it works. That's why it's it's such it's it's really an excellent uh, form of self-defense. Oh, I would say so. You get, you're in LA Friday through Sunday, you come back and you tell your instructor here, or is he your partner? Do you guys own the, he owns the studio and you're, you're teaching for him? We're partners. You're partners in the studio. We're partners in a Taekwondo studio. And this is 1989. Yes. Yes. Okay. No, no, no. That's uh, yeah. That's when we started full time. I had been teaching for him since 1987, a student since about 1983, 84. And then you guys said, we're going to go open a studio together. So at that time and you're are you on a different level of taekwondo to where you are gifted in it were you gifted in it from your beginnings and your training and your instruction that you received from your days of being a student and then coming here with it were you gifted in taekwondo was it natural to you or um is that why he like latched on to you is that your talent level was different so you became partners with this guy that was qualified as an instructor in the first place uh, yeah, I think I think the main thing was I, I've kind of I'm pretty athletic for whatever reason. I got that ability, which, you know, has obviously worked to my favor. And then the martial arts, I just seem to I seem to be I, I don't know that I'm the greatest technician. I'm obviously not the biggest person. I've, I've got I'm five, eight. I've got the torso of a six foot two man. So you can imagine what my legs look like. (laughs) So, you know, that was never, you know, I'm not the high kicker, you know, I do kick high, but it doesn't look very high. So it was never anything like I had these phenomenal skills, but what I, I think I do well is I teach well. I've always had a knack for remembering the minute details of how to teach, how to teach a technique or, you know, and how to teach others how to teach it. So that's, I think, that was my skill level is teaching and analyzing things and really looking outside the box. You know, when, when somebody says this and I always could scrutinize it and then, you know, sometimes make it better, sometimes do what they say because that is the right way to teach it. So you ta- you got the, you got the Japanese saying, don't do Taekwondo. You got the Koreans saying, don't do karate in your partner at this time in 1989, 1990 timeframe. Is he traditionally a karate guy? Taekwondo guy. So he's a Taekwondo guy. He's in the Korean mindset of Taekwondo and the discipline of Taekwondo. You come back now and now you're throwing in Israeli with this. Is the mindset of the traditionalist, the Japanese, the Asian martial arts, are they like, that's just a ripoff of what we're doing? Is there, is there, is there, you know, like, is he saying push, is he pushing back on you? Like, no, that's not traditional. That's just a ripoff. Is it, did it get like that when Krav Maga was starting to gain some momentum? Yeah, not at all. As a matter of fact, so so let's move forward. So we start the school, and then, like I said earlier, we're this is about ninety, let's say ninety seven, ninety eight, when I had first heard heard about Krav Maga. Oh, so you're you're already in his studio way past ninety. So you're almost to the end of the nineties, and that's when you go to L.A. Yeah. Okay, so I had the time frame off a little bit. So you come back in like ninety seven time frame with this Krav Maga mentality. Yeah, that's when we start seeing it. 
that's when I start reading about it and, and I'm getting more interested in it. But it wasn't until probably 98 until I went down there and uh, actually went to the school. So, you know, and, and he was on board. I just, you know, he kind of knew that I always went out and did other things, you know, just looking for things to bring back to the school. And then, you know, and, and obviously he was in, of the same mindset. You know, we, we, we taught the traditional part of our martial art, but we also wanted to teach people how to defend themselves properly. And because people are coming to you for self-defense and they leave your school every night thinking they know how to defend themselves. So I always felt like it's my job to make sure that if something happens, they know how to react properly. So when I went down to the Krav Maga National Training Center and then came back, very excited. My partner was very excited too. And that's how we kind of moved that direction. So your studio transitions now into being you can come here to learn the discipline of taekwondo but here's this new thing that we're offering and the public comes in and now they have an option they have a different they can choose one or the other or is it all trained together now at that time they could choose one or the other or do both and like uh, my my children did both they liked they liked the traditional part of the Taekwondo because they were in it for so long, but then they wanted to do Krav Maga because their dad said they really want to do Krav Maga. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're kind of, well, that's a good point, Neil. So if, if, if you're going to tell somebody like me, for instance, it says, man, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about getting into martial arts. I'm going to this judo seminar. I'm going to this, this Taekwondo deal. Would you sit me down and go, look, here's the deal. If you're going at this to where you want to become a black belt and take the next four or five years or 10 years in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, whatever it might be, go for it. But if you're into this for the fight part of it and defending yourself and at least having something that you might be able to show your daughter someday or a couple different techniques to show your nephew one day or whoever... Would you say Krav Maga is where it's at? And you've, you've studied a lot of different disciplines now. Is that, is, is that where you would tell me now is get into Krav Maga? I would never tell anybody what to do or even try to redirect them if they were planning on doing something. But if somebody comes to me and says, Neil, why do you teach Krav Maga? Why did you, what attracted you to Krav Maga? I'll tell them. But I would never try to say, don't do this or don't do that. So if I came to you though, and I said, Neil, I'm going to Taekwondo, would you say why? Let me, let me, let me figure out why you're doing it. And then if I tell you, because I want to defend myself coming out of a theater one night where there's some vulnerability, you would say, well, consider this. Certainly, certainly. I would definitely do that. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of martial arts, they become very sanitary. You know, there's not a lot of interaction physically touching and doing things like, you know, you, a perfect example, because you've been doing it, is the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You get involved with that. That's very hands-on, very sweaty, very painful, a lot of misery, a lot of, you know, a lot of trauma. And it's not for everybody. And, and so, like, that's one of the things with Krav Maga. It's not for everybody because it's very, it's about the fight. You train to fight. You train to defend yourself. You don't, we, it, it's not training, you know, I don't, don't make, I don't want to make it sound like it's you're, you're training people to punish others. You're training people how to defend themselves. And that's the beauty of Krav Maga, but it's not for everybody. 
because it is very, it's very painful. There's, there's a lot involved with it that it's not, it's not sanitary. It's a lot of hands-on stuff. It's a lot of intensity. And the classes are taught intensely because the fight is intense. And if you let your students come into class one day and it's, you know, it's mamby-pamby and, you know, it's not, it's not about the fight. You're giving them that's one day of bad habits. And that's the, that's what I've always liked about Krav Maga. It's about the fight. It's about self-defense and getting people in your class and getting that mindset. So then it, if it, hopefully it never happens to you, any of your students, but if it does, they react appropriately. And the only way you're going to react appropriately is if you train that way. I imagine, I'm not like we talked about earlier, I'm not a hunter, but I imagine it's hunting's the same. Instincts. And, and, and the things you guys do out there, when I watch that show, it's, you know, when the ducks are coming in, everybody's quiet, everybody's focused, and you have to train that way to do that, or the ducks are going to fly away. I imagine. Yeah, and it's true. Is that you got to you got to it's you picture yourself getting in one of those incidents where you have to defend yourself or a home invasion, and are you going to be able to call the cops and the cops going to get there in seven seconds? No. Is your home security um, system going to deter somebody potentially if they if you know unless they got some they're not afraid to get recorded or filmed or the alarm going off and, 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 you know, police being informed and on their way, but cops can't get there fast and you're in a deep sleep and you you got a home invader. Are you going to be ready? If you're walking, you know, that vulnerable situation, you're going to be ready if somebody comes up to you and you always tell yourself, yeah, I'm going to be ready. I'll be, I'm going to defend myself. Even if you have your peace on you and somebody takes you at the wrong angle and you're vulnerable and you're not ready for it. Um, I think that the focus of Krav Maga and being in that fight and being that hands-on and being that unsanitary and being that intense during the sessions is making you change your mindset of where you're always prepared. It doesn't change your flow as I'm not going to enjoy myself. I'm not going to have fun. But I've talked to several individuals in law enforcement, military, what guys you hear them all the time or their, their mindset's different when they're in different environments. So you start looking at that. If this happens, I'm going to react this way. I'm going to, and I think that's what that, that training is going to teach you as opposed to just being able to put together a good kick with good core strength and balance on one leg and springing your leg up and, and kicking something. This is teaching you that mindset of, Hey, what if this is what, I, if this happens, I'm going to do this. So are you automatically going into these situations? You and Ellen go into this restaurant or into this social event. Are you looking, are you looking for things like, I know you're not looking at individuals going, Oh, this guy's the one, but are you looking like if this happens, I'm going to jump up on this bar and do a backflip and come out. That's a joke. That's like a show Kazugi Bruce Lee kind of scenario. But are you looking like if this happens, I'm going to be prepared and I'm going to go to this bar or is, is, is Krav Maga teaching you to be prepared from the very beginning or is it all reactionary? Yeah, obviously, you don't want to, you know, as far as the fight goes and predators go, right, which is everybody's worried about predators, right? Most of us are great people with, we have no problem. We're never going to do anything bad to somebody unless they attack us. So we're worried about the predators and that's the few, but they're out there. So, you know, it's obviously about, uh, you know, more than me keeping an eye on people, I always try to just be aware I'm aware when I walk out of a, when I walk out of a building, I don't care where it is. I'm always looking. I I just look, it's just natural. I'm looking what's going on. Who's around me. What's happening. I go to my car before I open the door. I look what's going on. Who's around me. 
you know, and, and so that's just, that's just being, that's preparedness, which is just something I've always done. I just, and it, it's a good habit to be in and it's not paranoia, it's being prepared. And so as far as that goes, that's what I'm doing as far as being out when, when we're out and about and everything. And obviously, you know, the, with the training, so I don't think you need to, what you need to do is you train in a bunch of different scenarios in Krav Maga. It may be a choke. It may be a guy takes you down and he's on top of you. It may be a person pointing a, a gun at you in a threatening way. Obviously not shooting you because it's, it's, the, old, it's the, old, the old adage, what, what, what do you do when a guy hits you in the back of the head with a two by four? Yeah, well, you can't. Yeah, you go down. Yeah, you go down. So you can't prepare yourself for every single thing. But you, in Krav Maga, the training is, okay, here's a guy. He's got a knife, and he tries to stab me with it. Here's a guy. He's got a baseball bat, and he swings it at me. Here's multiple attackers. What do I do in a multi, multiple attacker situation? So you're always, you're, you're bringing these threats. You're, you, it's a real, Krav Maga's principles are very simple. You address the danger. You take care of whatever that, whatever that danger is, you know, you, you grab the gun, you block the punch, you, you, you defend the knife, and then as quickly as possible, you nail the person. So it's a, it's a shock. It's shock treatment, you know, so, and that's Krav Maga. It's contact combat. So when you say contact combat, though, and you say you nail the person, do you stop nailing the person once you have him subdued or once you have, you get into a safe, safe, safer area to where you might take the knife out of his hand, take the revolver or the, the, auto, the, the pistol out of his hand, you got him, you're safe. Or do you just beat him into oblivion until he, he knows that he messed with the wrong person? Do you go as far as killing the person? Does Krav Maga, when you say contact combat, where does it stop? Do you wait until you have a knee in his throat, his guns, his guns in a safe place. He's given up. You call the cops. You have his knee on your, your knee on his throat until the cops get there. Or do you beat him to a pulp or what does the discipline teach you? Yeah, that, that's very, that's a great question. Um, and this is the very first thing, you, you know, my very first instructor class I went to at Krav Maga, the very first thing, they, um, the instructors, and they, they, they emphasize this all the time, all the time, and it came directly from Emi. And Emi said, you do not punish. You do not punish people in, in a fight. You subdue the person. You have to beat them, hit them, take them down, whatever it may be, and, con and contain that person until they stop and you can get away safely. Now, you know, does it, you know, do you unload their gun and leave it there for them and take their bullets? I mean, you know, these are all things, you, you know, you, yeah, you can't do that. Do you beat them to a pulp until they're, you know, you, you could possibly kill them? Well, you have to beat them until they stop attacking you. You got to beat them till the point where you can get away safely. And what, and I shouldn't say beat, but you know, the, it's, it's part of the fight. The contact you're giving them is until they stop. And, it, and you know, what is that? You know, are they faking it? And they're going to jump up. I mean, you're going to know if you, if you put it on somebody, you can, you, you're going to know what's, what the stopping point is. But yeah, that, that's a big thing in Krav Maga. It's never punish. And, and that is the bad thing with predators. Predators will punish you. So you have to put it on them until it stops. I think that is the key. And that is a principle of Krav Maga, no punishing. A principle of Krav Maga can be broken, though, if you're with your daughter and somebody attacks your daughter to where you're within reach of punishing that person. You still are in the mindset and the discipline of even though I just saw my little girl get knocked down or get threatened, you're still going to be of the discipline of subdued, 
He's he ain't faking it. He's done. He's I got him good enough. I put it on him good enough. He's down. You're disciplined with your training, Neil, to be like that's enough. My daughter's fine. She's not that hurt. Or do you ever see? Is it just temperamental? Does temperament play a part in it to where you're like, I ain't quitting for what you did to my family kind of mentality. Yeah, you know that's very interesting, and obviously it's it's scenario based. But I've often wrestled with that in my mind. You know, if you get if you get into if you're in the fight, whatever it may be, whatever the threat was, whatever happened, you know, whatever it's a situation, you know, this person was going to kill you. Um, what do you do? Do you, you know, obviously, if you kill somebody, there's a lot of ramifications. Law enforcement getting sued all these things, even beating somebody that could all come up. So you got to, you know, you, you play the scenarios in your head. What am I going to do when it really does happen? Am I going to finish this person off so that this threat will never, ever happen? Or do, do I let this person go? And maybe this person comes back to me one day after they serve their time or whatever it may be. So these are all things that individuals have to wrestle with. And I, do, I think until you get in that scenario, um, you know, something that intense, um, I don't think you really know how you're going to react. Um, I would hope that I would not do that. I would hope that, you know, my nature is a kind person that knows how to fight. And I would hope that if it got to that point that I, I wouldn't take that person's life. But you would have to see. Okay. And if you can't answer this or talk about this, because I, I don't know how far you can push somebody to with your level of expertise and your level of more importantly your respect of Emi and what Krav Maga is in the martial arts I don't know what protocol is I don't know what's kosher to be able to say hey tell me this or tell me this or you know there's uh, obviously there's things that you probably can't talk about that's only taught around you maybe there's not maybe it's all public knowledge I don't know but if when you hear the words contact combat if a guy comes up to me and he's got a gun or a knife and I grab his wrist and I make sure that that gun's pointing in a safe direction and then I punch him in his head in the temple wherever, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like the shots that Krav Maga teaches you to put on him is pretty like mind-blowing to me as far as like you are you are punishing them in a way with the way you're taught to strike. And that maybe I'm saying that wrong. Maybe punishing is the wrong word, but you're 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 going in for the kill, maybe not to physically kill in somebody's life, but shatter their nose, break bones. Um, it's not like you're just like, Hey, here's a headlock for pointing that gun at me. And you better tap out when you're, when you, when your head's feeling like it's going to burst open, you know, you're not hitting them in the, in the eye and saying, you're going to have a big black eye tomorrow. It seems to me like when you, when you put it on them in Krav Maga, you're, you're ending it for them. Like your eye sockets broke, your nose is broke. Something's bleeding. Something's shattering is, is that going too far saying it that way or is that fair to say well an interesting you know one of the things you teach your students is punch of punch of your life it's the punch of your life so the situation arises whatever it may be and you're making a defense and then here's the punch it could be the punch of your life and that means if you do not if you do not execute it correctly and powerfully and fast and strong it may it may not be the punch you need to stop that uh, that assailant so yeah, you know, you, when you train, you train to hit hard, whether it's a knee, an elbow, a punch, a palm strike, whatever you're dropping on the person, you, it, it's full power and it's hard. 
And it, it's, it's, it's got to be more than disruptive. It's got to, it's got to be, you've got to hit hard, but you know, perfect examples, you know, you, you know, the human body can take a lot. You watch UFC fighters, you watch any of these cage fighters and everybody's seeing it now. And, and I hope people are realizing that you don't want to get in altercations <laughs> because you can't tell anymore. You don't know who's who, you don't know who's got the glass jaw and who will go down and who won't. So the best thing to do is avoid it all. But um, here's an example of punishing. You watch UFC fighters. I mean, if, if, if the guys in the ring had the self-control that some of them do, you see some of them, they hit the guy, the guy goes down, they stop. They know the person's knocked out. There's some people, if there was a guy, there was not a referee jumping in, Big John, whatever his name is from the UFC, yeah. that's the guy I've been seeing yeah, forever. John or Herb, Herb Dean or somebody. I yeah. Get, yeah, they're going to be on him like a spider, just bam, bam, bam. They would bam. kill him. They'd kill him. They would kill him. They just snapped. They snap. Some of those guys snap. So to me, it's, um, you know, what's going to happen, you don't know until you're in that situation. But that, to me, is punishing. You know, you hit somebody, they go down, they're knocked out. Um, you know, you're giving somebody a rear naked choke, you know when the life goes right out of them. And those guys, will, some of them will just still hang on until they're prying their arms off them. It's like, you know, that to me is punishing. The fight's over. The fight's over. So you, but you're, but that's just from shit talk build up in a press conference with a promoter <laughs> and somebody throwing a water bottle across the room, Nate Diaz or Conor McGregor or somebody, and the whole place loses their mind and then they get in the octagon and then it's over and then they hug each other. This is a gun to your head. Your daughter's in threat. Ellen's in threatening, threatening situation. My daughter's being threatened. I am in a vulnerable situation. Now you're like, you don't punish them like that takes a lot of discipline because the first thing that goes off in somebody's mind is you mess with my family you come into my house i'm shooting you in the head and you're done i don't care what the pre you know the ramifications are but to me if if you get put in that situation to where somebody puts your life in jeopardy your life in danger they have the audacity to come up to you and try to take your wallet from gunpoint or put you in a life-threatening situation because of their ignorance or whatever it is their mental stability now you're telling me stop when you're ahead kind of mentality. You got them. That's enough. And then they go to it with our justice system and they get another slap on the hand. They might get right back out and then go do it to another person that might not be trained in Krav Maga that gets their ass kicked or gets killed and their money stolen and their life is, is never the same because they, they just don't have any, any trust in anybody anymore or trust in society to go out and do it. So why not punish them? Why not end it for them for them having that, mindset of oh i'm gonna go put a gun to neil's head because i can that's bullshit i'm not saying that krav maga or the discipline or, or this non-punishment theory is bullshit i'm saying that what they do is not right so where does the lesson end is my point it's almost like if if emi's saying don't punish him i'm like well, okay well where does punish where does the ass whippings end in punishment begin kind of deal i guess you have to know where that is is that knowing that the fight's over and the dude's on his back and his nose is exploding and he's bleeding and his eyes are watering and he can't fight anymore? Or do you check all of his pockets and make sure he can't reach into an uh, ankle holster and pull out another weapon? Where does it stop? You know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with it is like, man, in that situation, it would be hard for somebody to know where the ass whipping ends and the punishment begins. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, you know, why not go over there and stomp on their head, finish it, right? <laughs> You know, and that's that's a that's a decision somebody has to make. You know, um, just you know, my men, just the person, the kind of person I am, I'm probably I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. 
you know, and I know they're predators and, and predators will remain predators. And, you know, they may go back out and do this again and they may not. Who knows? Likelihood probably. But to me, that's that I've always been that person, you know, even as a little kid in the in the schoolyard scrap, you know, I was a little judo guy, little tiny guy, even in high school, little tiny guy, five foot eight, 115 pounds. And, you know, when things would happen, there were altercations. I was always subdue the person, let them go if they stop. Yeah, but that's that's me when I punched Jonah Crawford in eighth grade because he's, <laughs> I, I grew up poor and I always had generic soda or the generic cheese, you know, and the government cheese. And, and my mom and dad worked their asses off. And this is no slight on anybody. I'm just saying I got my first real six pack of Coca-Cola. I mean, it wasn't the Shasta. It wasn't the high V. It was Coca-Cola, the red cans. This dude, you know, he came and took my six pack out of the we were going on a field trip to, to the lake. And I punched him one time in his nose and it exploded. Then I picked him up like a baby and walked him to the nurse's office and then walked right into Mr. Chapin, the disciplinarian, the vice president disciplinarian uh, pre- principal and said, hey, this is what I did. Got suspended for the day. My dad was like, OK, whatever. What happened? That's just a schoolyard scuffle. That's not a gun to your head. Mm-hmm. So you really still have that mentality of going from the 115 pound judo master in sixth grade to now you're 50 and you get threatened outside of a theater. It's still the same mentality. Yeah. He is a predator. He was going to end your life. He was putting your life. It wasn't a water gun. It's a freaking nine millimeter with a loaded magazine, a loaded clip. He's ready to smoke you. It's still the same mentality. To me, it's almost like impossible to turn it off that quick. I just don't get it. I, I think that that's why martial arts are so respectful is because it teaches you that discipline of turning it off as fast as you can turn it on. It's got to be. That's why they're taught. That's got to be it. Because if not, then you would smoke anybody in any scuffle that you ever got into that that, that put your life in harm's way. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of people probably, you know, they're they're thinking that way too. You know, if I don't end this now completely, will this come back to haunt me? will this person come back to haunt me? And that's the, that's the tough, difficult decision. But, um, you know, when you have a guy who's passed on this, this art, this, uh, I shouldn't even say martial art, this fighting skill of Krav Maga, and that's his tenant. Don't punish people. I mean, to me, I respect that. Yeah. Now, when the situation arises, life or death, and something like that happens to me, what am I going to do? I hope that whatever it is, it's the right thing. <laughs> and, and, and I think that that's the, the, obviously the politically correct way to say it. And I think that's a safe way to say it. And I think it's, you're being real about that. And I think that what Amy was teaching was Krav Maga can be devastating. If, if you do it right and you apply your technique right, from what I've learned about it, it can put you in your place in a hurry and cause bodily harm in a hurry and make you understand you shouldn't have done that. So I understand the discipline part of it. Is, it, is this, uh, you, 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 you kind of retracted when you said martial art. Is it not considered a martial art? Yeah, there's no art to it. Yeah, there's no... That's the, you know, the traditional martial arts is not much about the fight, more about teaching people how to kick, punch, throw blocks, things like that. Now, when you start getting into things, but, you know, even, you know, I'm, I, I was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu 
practitioner did it up till my blue belt, which isn't very far, a few years with a uh, local Gary Great. And uh, even even that, you know, you got to be careful with with uh, you know to sport things like that that it doesn't become a sport. You know that you are also teaching your students how, okay, you know you've got these grappling skills, but what happens in this scenario? And and that and that's the beauty of Krav Maga. The scenario is always the fight. The training is always the fight. When you teach somebody to had to kick to the groin. It's in a combative situation. You say, okay, if you're going to kick to the groin, this is how you do it. And this is what we're going to do right now. You know, you're going to practice from this way, this way, this way. And, and you're, you're hitting shields and your intensity is there. And it's always about that. It's about the intensity and the intent. And so there's, really, there's no, I, I, I would never say Krav Maga is a martial art because there's no art to it. It's, it's about the fight. It's martial. It's about the fight. I love that. I just think that it's so important to, I, I, it's, it's amazing though, 44 years old, watched every Bruce Lee movie known to man, every Jean-Claude, every Steven Seagal movie known to man, show Kazugi ninja movies, uh, read Kung Fu magazine, Ernie Ray's juniors and the sidekick TV show and the Ernie Ray's training here in Reno. Um, never got into martial arts, never got into it. Only cared about baseball my whole life, but I heard about boxing. I heard about judo. I heard about karate. I heard about taekwondo. I heard about nunchucks. I heard about stick fighting and knife fighting and all that. Never, ever, ever heard of Krav Maga until I met you. And I'm like, what? What? Krav what? Like that to me is weird. I don't know if weird's the right word, but I would bet that a lot of people that don't, you know, that aren't in it don't know what it is. I've heard, I got a really, really good friend that fought on the U.S. team for 13 years in, in, in jiu-jitsu, represented us, won the Pan Am Games, um, stud, fighter, lives here in Reno, very successful. He says, if I had 10 years to dedicate to martial arts, I would discipline myself to get my first degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. If I had one year, I would study Krav Maga only. Because he says that is the fight. That's what's going to get you prepared for any situation that might present itself to you. And that's pretty cool to hear that. But it's still weird to me that I never, ever once heard those two words said. Krav Maga. K-R-A-V space M-A-G-A. Krav Maga. It's contact combat. Like, why didn't I hear of it? Why? I grew up in Reno. I was here for the same years you were here. It, was it just not promoted the right way? Was it held back by by the school of of uh, because the because of the Koreans and the Japanese didn't want it out there? Why why would you never hear of it? Because I wish I'd have known about this when I was coming out of college or high school or something just to go take a course and learn it to learn how to defend myself. Yeah, when when we uh, when we got our license as Krav Maga instructors, um, my partner and I. We had a licensing fee we paid to Krav Maga worldwide. Um, at the time, Emi came over to the United States with Darren Levine, and he did that because he knew Darren would promote Krav Maga. And that was a big thing to Emi, to, to not only prom promote it, but promote it correctly, and to spread Krav Maga throughout the world. So Krav Maga Worldwide was formed in LA and that's when, and they were teaching down there for, for a long time and then they started the instructor program in, uh, in 99. And actually my instructor and I, he was in the first class, I was in the second class of instructors um, that ever took place at uh, a National Training Center. Um, so 
Emi, um, you know, to get, to get that licensing, you had to even say Krav Maga back then, you had to be licensed to Krav Maga worldwide. They're very strict with that name. Um, so in Reno, we were the only Krav Maga school in town that started in 99. So it went on for a few years after that. Hold on one sec. What year did they start in LA? What year did Emi bring it over here? If this is 99 in Reno, the first school opens up in Northern Nevada in Reno. Are there schools spreading all over the, the, the country before that? Or was it pretty new nationally at that time? It was new. It was in L.A. at the time. That's it. That was it. Yeah, it was Krav Maga Worldwide was in L.A. on Olympic Boulevard. Big giant. And school. so was that like when when Emi came over here with Darren, was that 99? No, he came over prior to that. Um, and he came over probably mid 90s, early 90s, I would say, um, is when he came over. And I, I, I had all these dates in my mind at one time before, but I don't anymore. But so they were down there. And then this was a. Uh, after the training and getting that school built up and the program built up, that's when they were taking it to the next level of what Emi wanted, which was an instructor's program to, to teach other people across the country so they could start spreading Krav Maga. So in, in Reno, we were the licensed school for Reno. Um, it was Reno Taekwondo and Krav Maga Training Center. And that's what we were called. So we were the one school. And, you know, it was, it's like everything else. It's, you know, we were over in suburban southwest reno and that was our little school there so it wasn't really then that was the only school in town it was pro, we were the only school kramaga school in the uh in the state at the time and then so then it just kind of blossomed from there and now the schools are have, have you know they're all over the country and the word kramaga is now it's not contained where you cannot there's other people teaching kramaga the kramaga that i know is from emi to darren to all the instructors to me and that's the Krav Maga I know and that's Krav Maga worldwide there's other people saying they teach Krav Maga now and I'm not sure what they're teaching and it may or may not be that um, but it's like people who teach Taekwondo Karate Jiu Jitsu whatever everybody anybody can say they teach Krav Maga now but uh, at the time when I was uh, an instructor and had my school we were the only licensed Krav Maga training center in the state of Nevada and I would assume with the, the fighting style that it is is a big percentage of law enforcement trained in Krav Maga, like police officers, security, you know, people of that nature, that lifestyle, that profession are a lot of, are a lot of sergeants or a lot of academies. Is it taught in the police academy or are police officers, uh, across the board being training. It seems to me like the perfect thing for law enforcement to be trained in. You're not going to be wearing a gi out there, you know, protecting the community and jump up and do a bunch of kicks and stuff. Krav Maga is the fight. Are, are, are a lot did you see that through your training and through your instructing that that law enforcement wanted to be trained in this yeah that's another great question and uh, when we started the program uh, the first thing i noticed there was a law enforcement arm of krav maga um krav maga worldwide they had a law enforcement they still do to this day there were instructors and that's all they did was they went to um different police offices you know and in different cities and in the county people down in LA and California, these guys were in, they, they were going nationwide actually. So they, there were specific 
and, and most of these guys who taught the police, they were police themselves or, you know, they, they had that background. So they understood, you know, the, the, the situations that police officers got into. So when we first had our school, opened our school, that's one of the very first things we did. Um, we went to the Reno, uh, police department. We went to Washoe County Sheriff's and said, Hey, there's an, there's a Krav Maga program for for officers, would you like to see what's going on? Well, the the Washoe County sheriffs they they said, yeah, let's let's get them up here. So they brought up the uh, the uh, law enforcement arm of Kramaga Worldwide up to Reno, and they did a like a two or three day seminar with the with the sheriff department, and uh, they came back and said, nope, we don't want to do that. That we we can't be blasting our customers like that, you know. So if you look at the techniques they teach their police officers, it's controlled movements. It's, it's not really, you know, to, to me personally, as a person who's, who's done a lot of, of grappling and, and, uh, um, you know, wrist locks and all these things, you know, that people try to do. Um, one of the things that I, I noticed about Krav Maga is it, like I said earlier, you address the danger and you hit the person. And in a situation where the person's, where I'm trying to grab you and, re- and, and twist your arm and put your arm behind your back and subdue you, which is what most law enforcement movement is, if, unless you're trained in Krav Maga, um, to me, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not a very efficient way to do it and not get hurt, even though, you know, you could certainly get hurt in any, in any scenario. But that's what they said. The sheriff department said, nope, we can't have our guys hitting people. And that stage, so they didn't do it. They, they it ended right there, and they never. That's it. See, so I didn't even think about when I when I was forming that question is like, how terrible is it that these guys are out there and all, a lot of the incidents that they get put you know get put into they don't put themselves in there, but a, a police officer gets called out on a something that's going on, and you're in that situation and you can't hit or strike back and somebody's hitting you or cussing you or pointing a gun at you or has got a knife on you or is kicking you and you got to just be like wait a minute here you know just let me get these handcuffs on you and and dude that's not right like it's like the every especially in today's society in today's world in today's media you see like police brutality and all this stuff and i'm like maybe that's why these cop shows like this number one cable watch show on tv now on a and e live pd um, it's like, it's like cops on a couple cycles of steroids or HGH, right? It's like cameras in the car, camera on the chest, cameras following these cops and these police officers, men and women on high speed chases, on home invasions, on call outs that are just like the access that these camera crews have is why it's different in my opinion than cops ever was is that it's, it's, it's shows you what these guys and women and these men and women are being put into. It's not that you see a police officer in a car and be like, Oh, you little at the donut shop eating this. You know, there's all these mentalities or stereotypes about law enforcement and anybody can become a cop. And this guy's, you know, he looks that way and he's a cop, whatever. When you, these shows are showing you the incidents that these men and women are getting put into and it's dangerous. Every shift is dangerous. Every wife or husband that their wife or their husband goes out on, you know, on call or he's out on his, on his beat, they might not come home that day in that profession. It's not like, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't die in anything you do, but in law enforcement, and I'm not dramatizing it, they're in incidents that could any day could happen. 
and you can't hit somebody. You can't protect yourself to the point to where one shot to your nose and I break your nose wide open and then handcuff you. You shouldn't have done the shit in the first place. It's almost like, well, don't do that again. And it's bullshit. Like, I, I don't know, man, maybe that's, maybe that's just the, 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 the redneck in me coming out of, I, I just have a real bad, a real bad issue with people being slapped on the wrist for taking the initiative to do things. And it seems to me like if they were taught a lesson the first time that it might prevent them from ever wanting to do that again, instead of just going, Hey, don't spray paint that man's fence. Here's a little fine. And you're going to get a slap on the hand and and you're going to pay 20 bucks or whatever. No, you damaged my property. You took it upon yourself to damage something that I worked my ass off to achieve. That's not right but you can't do anything about it. And that's almost what you're saying is that the sheriffs are like, no, we're not going to hit our customers. I'm like, well, they damn sure better be able to hit their customers if they're getting swung at. It's just a weird mentality. It's like, I'm not saying beat them to a pulp, you know, don't punish them, but at least get them you in a safe position because you're not in a safe position if you're just slapping them on the wrist. Yeah. I, I have a, I have a, I have a real hard time with, uh, you know, police officers having to try to subdue, you know, subdue the the predator by grabbing them and twisting the wrist or putting their hand behind the back or, you know, things that aren't contact. And and the the thing with Krav Maga, and that's, that's why it works, is that a small woman can palm heel strike somebody, a big guy in the nose and give them that shock or hit him in the bottom of the chin coming upward and give him that shot that could give her time to get away or give her time to get, bring more strikes in to, to subdue the person. And same thing with law enforcement. You know, when, when they came here and, and, and showed the law enforcement officers, and they were off, obviously training, this is how you do it as a police. And then they just said, no, I was, I was shocked. But there's many police officers and, and law enforcement agencies around the country where oh, Krav Maga is part of their that's that's their self that's their self defense curriculum. So oh, okay, but let's say that it is. Can they use it? <laughs> can can they efficiently use it? Because you said it's about the fight. It's about pop. It's about putting it on them. The fight of the the punch of your life. There's no cops in this country that can do that. If you ask me, I don't think that they're allowed to. Yeah, you know, in theory, if 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 the, there's Krav Maga training at that police station. And obviously, you know, they would eventually have to send instructors, their, their self-defense instructors to Krav Maga to learn, to learn how to teach their law officers. Um, if, if they're doing it, I know what they're going to do when it happens because that's how they're training. If they're training in Krav Maga properly, they're, that's, they're going to be their, that's going to be their instinct. Um, when, when the hammer drops, that's your move. You, you, when they, when they are training in this, that just, I'm picturing cops in full uniform, right? They're going to train in what they're going to be wearing when they're, when they're serving, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems like most of them will, will have some kind of PE, PE clothes or, you know, oh, really? yeah, gym so, type so clothes So there's on. no geese in Krav Maga. Like if I went into your course, is there a special way that I would need to dress in your course? No, you would, uh, if you would wear shorts, a t-shirt, sneakers, always train in shoes. You're always in shoes. So that's one of the things, you know, I've always done is, uh, since 
being in Krav Maga's training shoes because you're you're going to be in shoes if something happens. So, so tell me a story, Neil. You're you're 58 years old. You've had to have had you've had to have an incident. Have you where you had got to use Krav Maga? Is it a secret? Does nobody know about it? If so, tell me. Shut the heck up. But you've had to have something walking out in a vulnerable situation. I keep using that word vulnerable because a lot of people are vulnerable when they're out partying, when they're out being entertained or entertaining or just hanging out. Okay, there's a lot of vulnerability because we trust our our fellow Americans, right? We trust that everything's going to be all right. I'm not talking about terrorist act or some psycho up on top of a first floor or high rise lighting people up with rifles, which is cowardly. I'm talking about everyday life, walking down the street, somebody comes up, puts a gun to you, a knife to you, threatens your life. Has it happened? You're 58. It had to have. That's a lot of trips around the sun, man. Yeah. Well, actually it hasn't. I have never been put into a situation where I've had a knife thrust at me or a gun pointed to my head um, besides the classroom situation. So I haven't had to do it. Even basic fights, uh, you know, I just, I'm a, I'm a diffuser. I rather, just because of my nature, I rather diffuse the situation if there is one or just avoid it. And I've always been able to do that. And I've never been set up, I've never, never been in a situation where somebody swung a bat at my head or, you know, tried to stab me or anything like that. So I, I don't know as far as the real fight, how it goes. I've heard many, many stories. Well, tell me one. Well, <laughs> Are they your students? No, no, never. Anybody you know, no. anybody you know that you've ever taught or that know that you know that knows the discipline of Krav Maga, which is not a martial art. There's no art to it, and I love that. If I opened up a Krav Maga school, it would be Krav Maga. There's no art to it. <laughs> That's just badass. But you have to know there's got to be something that you can tell me like that it rained down on somebody for putting somebody's life in, in, in jeopardy or in harm's way. Yeah. You know, personally, none of the students I've ever, ta I've ever taught have, have ever come back to me and said, yeah, I've had to use Krav Maga in this situation at the national training center. There were lots of stories just because there were lots of students and lots of instructors coming through um, the program. But you know, it's, it was always the same scenario, it, you know, the, the, whatever the threat was, um, you know, it, it was dealt with, you know, immediately and quickly. And then and, and the situation always ends up the same. You know, you, you whap, you know, you address the danger and pop and then, you know, take it to whatever level you have to take it to stop the, the abductor. But, you know, the, the perpetrator or the uh, predator. So, yeah, nothing, nothing stands out. You, are you an MMA fan? Do you watch fighting? Yes, I started watching. My first UFC was UFC 1, and the rules were no biting and no eye gouging. And right. Hoist Gracie had to fight. And back then it was uh, it went, went multiple fights. There were no rounds. No weight divisions. No weight divisions. You fought until the person either tapped out or was knocked out. And say they were started with 16 fighters, then it went to eight, then it went to four, then it went to two. That's how it was. And he'd come out there in that gi, and he was 100 pounds lighter than the Germans and Dan Severn, the All-American wrestler from Arizona State, and he would just put it on him. And the next thing you know, they're tapping out with an armbar or some sort of jiu Brazilian jiu-jitsu move. But it's, it's evolved. There's been a lot of evolving in fighting, just like martial arts has evolved, I'm sure. It, does, is there any fighter that comes to mind that you could tell me? And I'm not at, I'm not putting you on the spot to know the names, or, and I don't know if you're a super fan or not. But um, do you? Is there a fighter that comes a name that you've seen like, whoa, that dude knows Krav Maga? Like he's like I can tell that guy's been training Krav Maga the way he threw that punch, or the way that he threw that elbow, or the way that he just struck that person. 
No, not at all. Because the you know the the techniques are very similar, um, especially in in fighting arts like that. You know, everybody's trying to do the most efficient the most efficient way to deliver a, a punch or, or deliver an elbow or a knee strike. So those things have crossed over over the years. So you know from as far as even Krav Maga, you know, I learned some things like, you know, different ways to deliver punches and different ways to kick based on different principles. But yeah, no, I, I, I would say that everybody's trying to be as efficient as possible. So they're, they're grabbing techniques from each other. I, I tell you what though, do you know, I think, I hope one of the things that the UFC and, and all these other caged fighting things ha, ha, have taught people, which I kind of said earlier is that you've got to be very careful with whoever you're, whoever's out there. I mean, and it was, it's like the adage when we were in, I can remember being in grade school and it's like, don't mess with the wrestlers. And that's still the same guys. They're the top guys in the UFC. They're all collegiate, all American wrestlers. So, you know, that, that there's one fighter that comes to mind on me and maybe we can watch some of his highlight videos. John Jones, whether you like him, whether you hate him, it doesn't matter to me. He is a badass, but he has a very unorthodox approach His his platform. And I don't know exactly where he trains. I'm sure he trains a, a lot of crossover. Like you're saying, I know that he trains in with Greg, you know, with Greg in, in New Mexico. Um, we both know Kelly. I want to talk about Kelly in a little bit, but he throws these these spinning elbows and he'll get the guy up against the cage in the octagon and he'll throw his shoulder into his jaw and just like hit him with that shoulder because he's close up and he's got the guys, he's got arm control or wrist control and then all of a sudden, boom, you get popped right in the jaw with his shoulder. And he's, and he's always got hand control and he's always controlling those wrists. So there might be a knife in this one. There might be a nine millimeter of 40 caliber in this one. And he's always controlling those wrists. And then he, he knows how to keep his spacing really well to where I know you can't get me from here. Like, let's say you get the knife away from the person and now they're, and he knows like, Hey, if he's that this distance right here, I know that I can get him, but he can't get me. Like I watch him fight. And now I'm wondering, like, there's gotta be some kind of Krav Maga crossover in the way that he trains. Cause he's so unorthodox and so hard to predict he's so unpredictable and he wins at ease in every fight and he's been tested i think once in his career by gustafson i believe that was the fighter's name in part one of their fight gustafson number one fought him again in the rematch and destroyed him I, maybe we can watch him i don't know if you know who john jones is but man is he looks like he was training krav maga yeah you know it, it you know i'm I, I, I can't answer to that, but, but a guy like John Jones, who's that the unorthodox guys, are, they throw everybody off. And, and it's, it's because they're doing things in their training in their gym in ways that everybody else is not. You know, they're just doing certain things. Like you see the guys throwing the front kick and whammo, knock a guy out. And you're like, well, how come no one throws front kicks? They don't train in it. You know, and it's the, in those certain, the spinning elbows and the shoulder smashes they do, you know, all these little techniques that you see these things come out and you're like, wow, this guy threw a spinning hook kick and knocked that guy out. You know, and it, it's just people aren't training against it. So, the, so when it happens to them, they're, they're, caught, they're at a loss and they get blasted. And, and he, I think you're right that people maybe aren't prepared for the way John Jones comes at them. But man, 
he he does things that you would think would be so elementary you know the wrist control the arm control the hand control throwing the you know the spinning elbows i'm not saying those are elementary but it's it's not many people are doing it as consistently as he is then he starts throwing in these shoulders and it's almost like he's just aggravating them it's like you know i'm just gonna you know i got you you don't think I got anything left to do. You know, you got your one foot on my foot trying to hold down. I got both of your hands and wrists locked down. And now all of a sudden here comes my shoulder to your jaw and pop. And it's like, he's just always scoring these little points and always aggravating the fighter. And it just seems like that close combat fighting that he's doing and control that he has. You said it was what? Controlled combat and combat contact combat he's always got touch points he's always got that so i'm just wondering if you know could you tell if any of these fighters were trained in krav maga and is it allowed could you train a fighter like i i i guess you could you know but again it's that discipline of knowing when to stop and that's where the referees come in and the respect of the other fighters and you don't hear of a lot of ufc fighters or mma fighters at least it's not very well documented if it is the case in the media that there are a lot of street fights going on with these guys but for sure there was times where wearing a tap out shirt made you an mma fighter right where you put that shirt on and and now you're like man i'm an mma fighter everybody was an mma fighter and that's got to be the mentality now when you go into certain situations of i don't care if if, if i looked at you in a bar i would assume that i could beat you into royal oblivion based on my strength level compared to what i assume yours is you're 5'8, 155 i would think that i could beat the living piss out of you and then i'm I would get destroyed in a heartbeat. So the, the, the message and what I'm trying to say is stay away from it. Stay out of it. Don't be puffy chest. Don't be motor mouth. Don't be running your mouth and, and, and causing these incidents is, is the number one thing of not getting in that incidence. But on the other end of the spectrum is the discipline of Krav Maga is in the fight. And if the fight's brought to you, if there is an incident where you try to, you're living your life and you're a, a well, well-rounded citizen and an asset and a benefit to the community, but you get put in the situation, that's what Krav Maga is for. It's not about going into the bar on Friday night and jumping up on the bar, like I said, and saying, all right, who's, who's bringing it this week? Neil's here. He's ready to take on the next 20. It ain't about that. It's about the fight. If it comes to me, I'm ready. So that's, that's the thing about that discipline is that you automatically think that I'm a good boxer. I'm gonna go whip everybody's ass. No, that's street fighting is not worthy. It's not like you're just going out and beating people up just because you like to hurt people. I don't like that mentality. That's why I'm intrigued by what you do is I would assume I would destroy you in a fist fight or a street fight. And in reality, you would destroy me because of this style of training. So it's so easy to assume that you're a badass and that you could take anybody in any situation that you see. You can't judge the book by its cover. You can't. And if you start living with that mindset, then, you know, stay out of the incident first, but be ready for it if it comes your way kind of deal. I, I just think that, I think that MMA and the rise of the UFC in the last 15 years gave a lot of false reality to people that they could fight because they were seeing it on such a consistent basis. But on the other end of the spectrum again is like, maybe they can. <laughs> and they might be trained in something like Krav Maga that they'll whip your ass in a heartbeat if you mess with them. So don't mess with anybody. 
That's really what I, that's really what I'm getting out of it is that I'm going to be ready if you bring it to me, but I'm also going to be respectful and disciplined enough. And that's where I was going with my comment about the UFC. I don't see John Jones going out. I mean, he might get in some trouble on for other shit, but he's not going out and beating somebody up at the IHOP because they cut in line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, that, you know, the majority of people, I think even people drawn to martial arts in general, the majority of them are not, they're looking to defend themselves. Most people are going in there for self-defense. Now, it's, it'll be, it's interesting to see with all the MMA fighting schools, you know, I imagine a, some of their clientele are in there to improve their fighting skills because they like to fight, you know, and hopefully they contain it, they, they do it in the ring. You know, and they're not doing it on the street and, and hammering people. But yeah, I can. I, I with the advent of, of mixed martial arts, I mean, it, it's brought it's brought fighting to people that now you have a lot of people out there who are training in the style of fighting that would have never ever thought to do it before, right? They they didn't go to martial arts schools or anything like that. They're not in the boxing academy. They just see that on TV and that draws them to those schools. So it's a very interesting thing with the mixed martial arts schools it is and there's a there's a lot of success in it right now there's a lot of people that are flocking to it and maybe you know there's a lot of successful gyms a lot of fighters or ex-fighters that have ended their career starting their own gyms and their academies or whatever but there it's it's a successful lifestyle in a lot of ways for these schools because the the popularity of it. it doesn't mean you're ever going to become a world champion but think about what that means to be a world champion in the UFC as much as the belts do change hands and as much as the, as many weight divisions there are i think they do it right i'm not going to say that dana and the guys don't know what they're doing that's not my my specialty or my profession of course they i mean they just sold the company for 4.2 billion so obviously they know something I think that the success is extraordinary what these world champions or these successful guys that have successful careers are doing because think about how many people are training in all of these different disciplines now. There's hundreds of thousands of fighters and gyms across the country right now that are going in just to understand how to train and become a fighter. And maybe with that dream someday, you know, my dream was to be in the major leagues. Their dream is to have that belt around. So think about a Daniel Cormier that won, you know, that was on the Olympic wrestling team. Henry Cejudo that won gold in the Olympics in wrestling. Think about what they've done now. Or like a Dan Henderson who, you know, represented America twice in the Olympic Games. Or Matt Hughes. These guys that that stayed at the top of that game. Chuck Liddell, he was a college wrestler that learned to throw fine. You know, he had that right hand. Think about what it takes to get on top and stay on top and have a successful career when all of that competition is coming at your ass all the time with all of these kids that are starting it, you know, when they're five years old now. Daniel Cormier didn't train mixed martial arts, fighting or MMA. He was a wrestler. And then he, and he's, and he's just learned how he's the heavyweight champion of the world. He was light heavyweight champion of the world. They call him the most dangerous man in the world. I, I, I truly think John Jones would smoke him if they fought, but I couldn't guarantee that because he always surprises me. But my point is, is that think about what it means to be on the top of the world. Ryan Bader in Bellator just won the Grand Prix and the heavyweight championship of the world in Bellator. He's a college wrestler from ASU, came from a queen high school, local kid here. It really puts it in perspective, Neil, like these dudes are badasses that are up there doing that. It's not fake. Yeah, no doubt. The, uh, the MMA, it's, it's certainly evolved. Um, like I said, when I was watching it from the beginning, you know, very first UFC one, 
you know, we watched it consistently for years and years, and it kind of went through its little lull there when, uh, you know, they were they were banned in, in Nevada and banned in New York. Of, and, I think that first one was yeah. in Denver. And then they ended up getting banned in Colorado, I think, for yeah, a while. Yeah, they had to kind of adjust the rules a little. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a na- it's a worldwide sport now. You know, when they were doing all the the fights in Japan and stuff, I w- I can't even remember what that league was called. Pride, Pride. Yeah, yeah I mean, there UFC was some, bought them too. Yeah, there was some great stuff going on. So yeah, they, these guys are they're world class athletes. You know, it went from a guy showing up in a gi and a, a sumo wrestler to world-class athletes and then movie stars and then talk shows and then ronda rousey's in the wwe and i think it's awesome i think it's awesome that you know that it's turned into what it is it just hopefully it doesn't give people a false mindset of oh i can jump in there and do that those guys are highly trained in ways to where we're not you are i'm not i shouldn't say you are but um back to Krav Maga and Kelly Parati in Conviction MMA. You know her. You know her through different people. You've trained with her ex-husband. Um, she's an awesome woman. She's been on the podcast. I'm actually taking my daughter to her school tomorrow for her first run, you know, her first day of classes, getting her signed up and going. Not because my daughter's going to be Ronda Rousey or Holly Holm. She's going to go there to be able to defend herself, hopefully get in good shape, hopefully get confidence. You know, that unity of the people around her supporting her, everything that I hear that comes out of that studio and that in that gym, I think it's important. You know, I went, I talked to my ex-wife and I'm like, what do you think? She's like, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. As long as it doesn't do this and it does, she doesn't, you know, there's a chance she might get injured or hurt or whatever, but Kelly's pretty special. Um, you know her and in, in some of her attributes and some of her accomplishments. Uh, is she trained in Krav Maga too? Um, uh, Kelly's not, but, uh, you know, obviously her Brazilian jiu-jitsu background is, is insane. Um, you know, she, you don't want her to tie you up. Obviously, you know, you wouldn't want her on your back. So, yeah, she's she's a very accomplished Brazilian jiu-jitsu person. And, um, you know, as far as her, uh, the other fighting skills and, and things they teach there, I'm not real familiar with. But but uh, I know the Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, that Kelly can teach is top-notch. Do you know any females that you would say were quote-unquote top-notch in Krav Maga? Um in the Reno area? No, I don't. I don't care where they're from. Are there women out there that would that you would be that are unassuming like yourself? You were like, that's just a chick, and then she comes up and, and blasts you in the nose in training Krav Maga. Oh, certainly. When I was uh, at the National Training Center for all the classes I, I I took back then, there were women there that they were teaching my classes, and they you would be very respectful. What were they built like? Oh, different sizes, you know, skinny people like me to, you know, to even more musclier and taller. But yeah, no, just uh, very unassuming, very unassuming. Um, There was a movie that Jennifer Lopez was in called Enough. And I I don't know, I'm sure some people have have watched that movie or heard about it. I just saw a replay of it the other day. And that was that was back in the mid 2000s. And that was uh, she was doing Krav Maga techniques and that. Really? And it was about spousal abuse and how she finally, uh, they show her going to a Krav Maga class and taking some classes and doing the training exercises. And it was really, it was, it was pretty true to what Krav Maga is. They were training her for the fight and, uh, she ended up having to defend herself against her husband. And, um, 
but yeah, there was, there was a lot of, it, that was the interesting thing too, just being at the National Training Center in LA, how many, you know, you would see a lot of celebrities in their training, a lot. Really? Can you name one? Or is that a no-no? I don't know if it's a no-no or not. <laughs> <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, is he trained in Krav Maga? <laughs> is Rocky trained in Krav Maga? I don't know Are about that. Are you trying to tell me that? <laughs> don't know, yeah. Van Damme? No, 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 no. Those guys were all, those guys were all out Karate doing their type. own things. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, yeah, the guy, it was the, uh, the one gal I did see in there was the, the movie American Pie. Yep. She was the one who was the uh, foreign exchange student from oh really whatever yeah. the gal's yeah. name was yeah, yeah she was trained in Krav Maga when I was back there doing my thing so really she's she's pretty cute Ellen nothing to worry about nothing is Ellen training Krav Maga because you might have to fight her after that comment no, no she is not <laughs> yeah. she's not you made sure that your wife didn't take Krav Maga <laughs> but both of, your daughters are. Yeah, both my daughters train when they're children. So, yeah, my oldest uh, was, she was older and she, she was very accomplished and uh, probably somebody I wouldn't want to mess with. Really? How old is she? She'll be 28 in May. Does she have a boyfriend? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you could say it, Neil. <laughs> yes, she does. So, this is going out to her boyfriend, which I know very well. She's trained in Krav Maga, dude. Watch what you say. Watch what you do. And her dad's even more of a badass. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, I better get a gun. No, you better get Krav Maga is what you need to get. And then, you you, you know, the fitness part of your life and, and, and how it's, it's, it's kept you in the shape that you are, which is it's admirable to be where you're at, I think. And, and, and I'm not saying that 58's old because it's not. It's, it's like the, your glory days. That's like you're really in your, in your, in your money-making years. You're in your, in your traveling years. You're in, you got enough money to do things that you want to do. And you're, and you're staying in shape to where it, you could be 75 in 20 years, you know, close to 20 years and still in the same kind of shape like we talk about Les is. And doing, he leaves for Argentina tomorrow for 11 days to go enjoy life. 78 years old. He's like, shit, man, I'm feeling great. He was in the gym this morning, hitting the heavy bag, doing, I, I heard Pandola today at least 10 times say, man, Les, you're on a roll. He really is. He's kicking ass. He's 78. It's just like life is so special. It's not over at 58. It's not over at 65. You, as you get into your, in, you know, like, I guess midlife, you're like, man, it's, I got a lot of life, life to live. And if you could stay in shape and stay healthy and have the right mental aptitude and the right approach and the physical being to be able to do it, then what's better? I'm not saying that you can't on the other end of the spectrum. A lot of people have heard us talk about it on here about it's not healthy to be overweight and obese and all that stuff. And it's not, there ain't no doubt about it. It's, it's whether forget the aesthetics or the vanity in it. I'm talking just about the let's live until we're a hundred attitude. You know, it's probably not as easy, but in, in definitely not as comfortable, you know, to be like that. So you train where I train some and you, that place is special in a way to where the mindset that it gives you and the, and the, I think that what I'm really starting to see though, with Matt at this, at this part of my career with him, and I've been there a long time is his passion now and his expertise now are on a completely different level than I ever thought they would be. I always knew that he loved training. But man, when he talks now, Neil, and I'm just like, it's like hearing you talk about Krav Maga, I'm sure in your classes, is that he really gets it. 
He understands what he's doing. He's not just having us go in there and go through the motions. He really cares. The time that you're going to spend with him tomorrow, the time that you've spent with him for the last few years, I mean, it's, it's a huge benefit in life. Yeah. Most definitely. I mean, I've, uh, uh, God, when I got, it's been a while now, May three years ago is when I started with Pendola and, you know, he taught my kids when they were little, um, they were, you know, both collegiate athletes. So when they were doing their perspective sports, respective sports, excuse me, um, Matt was training them then, you know, and when we saw the value in that, it's like, okay, now these kids not only do their sports, but they, uh, they've got to have a, a trainer to make them strong and healthy. And, and that's what Matt was doing. So when I hurt my back three years ago, which was from, from nothing in particular. I didn't do anything, and all of a sudden it was hurt. It just started started hurting, and it was uh, debilitating. And I first thing I did was call Matt Pendola because I knew that was a guy who could help me. And here we are three years down the road, and I, I, I'll be like less. I'll be 78, and I'll certainly still be in there. Hopefully Matt will still be around teaching us, but if not, I'm sure he'll leave. His protege will. So, What makes him special? What do you, what do you think? That, is it his passion, his expertise, his approach to it? What, what do you think separates him? Yeah, his, he's got the uh, his intelligence level. His, Matt doesn't get you in there to train you. Matt gets you in there to be stronger, to be better to be healthier and, and to, so that you can continue to do whatever it is you like. For me, it's riding my mountain bike, throwing the disc. I play a lot of disc golf, doing Krav Maga. And then everybody's got their own passions. So um, I'm in there just trying to be a better person every day as far as my strength goes and, and my training. And, it, and it's helped me three years, three years now. And are you maxing out on bench every day and you're in the squat rack it's not the case huh it's it's like dude i i put myself in a position this weekend i was around the swimming pool and i was being the pool boy you know and i took a bad step where i put my foot i have bare feet and i put my foot in a position to where i was like oh my gosh i'm smoked right and you heard Matt talk about a lot, your core and your balance and your equilibrium and understanding body control and how to, to prevent that, man, I felt myself, you know, like secure myself and, and hinge and get the right position to where I was like, that was easy. But I was like, man, that could have got real ugly. And I'm talking like, you saw the hole today, right? That's a deep ass hole. Yeah, it is. And I was like, I could have been down in that thing, busting my head against the cement and down there just bleeding to death. Nobody was around. And, and, uh, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, it, it truly put me in that mindset of like the way you train in there is a hundred percent for everyday life. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about Pendola training and when, when my kids were there, I didn't know exactly what they were doing and their sports specific. I knew it was sports specific, but you know, my training with uh, other trainers and just going to the gym is just, you're doing all these exercises and everything and not really knowing why. And then the, the beauty of Pendola is you're, you're not, you know why you're doing it. And it's so sports specific that, you know, you, you don't come in and you just keep repeating these motions. I'll get, I'll come in, I get my protocol from Matt. I do it for three weeks in a row and I come back and meet him again. And I start a whole another group of exercises. And these exercises are so amazing to me. I've never gotten injured doing any of the moves. You know, I, you get in there, you do your moves, you feel great about it. You're not 
benching everything you can do or whatever, you know, traditional exercises in the gym. I, I don't think I've done one yet for the most part. It's, it's absolutely amazing to me. It, it really is. And it's, people are like, man, why are you on this train with Pendola so much? And it's because I owe a lot of my everyday success and mindset and outlook of to Matt and his studies and Aaron and what they've studied and their expertise and what that, what Pendola training has brought to me. And, you know, it could get old. The messaging could get old. I'm not being paid by Matt to talk about Matt Pendola. He doesn't need that. I'm just saying it doesn't matter where you live. You might be able to find a Matt Pendola-esque person, gym, offering, who knows what it is, Krav Maga school, martial arts school, just get started, get in there and get moving. But his way is special. And that's why I'm like, people nationally need to know about this. And I'm so excited for Aaron and Matt's videos now and people being able to download them and purchase them and have them in their arsenal of being like, man, I'm in the hotel. I got four days here. Like I leave Wednesday for a trip in Ohio, Kentucky and Indiana. And I'm going to need to do, you know, my protocol every day, just doing my protocol makes me like, man, I'm breathing better feel better like I literally took batting practice the other day with my nephews and I'm like oh I think I pulled a muscle whereas before it'd be ice bag heating pad ice bag Ben Gay I got on the freaking roller rolled it out boom just got it out it's like um, I, I've just got this different mindset now of being in there and it's not going through the motions. It's almost like what you started this conversation off with, Neil, was you feel so shitty when you miss one. And I do. I had to miss last Thursday for reasons I don't want to talk about. But it was like, man, I got to get back in there. So when I climbed into there today, I was like. I mean, I was up at 4.30 this morning and I was ready to work out then. It didn't start until later than that, but I mean, I was ready to rock. I was out here jump roping early today. I was freaking getting my body in motion. Then I went I went there about 45 minutes early and warmed up with less and got on the bikes and, and did all the thing. And it's not raw, raw. Look at me. The things that we do in there aren't brain science. It's things that Matt has come up with. It's about getting in there and learning that because I'm going to tell you straight up, if I don't go in there, I don't do that shit on my own. It's hard to be like, oh, I'm going to get up and do all these exercises. And then you, you don't, you're not, the creativity of it is what gets me. The things he had me doing today, the amount of pull-ups I can do because of that place, which isn't a ton, but I can do 10 pull-ups now, really legit pull-ups. And it's because of Pandola training. 10 pull-ups is not an easy feat. For you, it might be. For somebody that's built like you and your body strength and you, and you don't have a lot of BMI, your BMI is low, your body mass index, you can probably do more pull-ups. But the mindset that I've gotten out of there is like, man, I want to get to 12 pull-ups now. I want to keep challenging myself. And we were doing things today that you're like, what in the freak were you? He's, I just picture him and Aaron laying on their bed at night naked, coming up with all the, let's, let, let's do this to those guys tomorrow. Wait, and, wait until you see the look on Belding's face when we tell him this. But it's not. It's like well thought out, sought out stuff to where you're like, man, it's really paying off. You're coming down a hill at 78 years old with an elk rack on your back like elk does, like Les does, and you hit a rock wrong and you might twist your ankle. He catches himself. He uses his core. He uses his balance to catch so he doesn't fall down. That's what we're training for is, you know, that better version of ourselves and making sure that we can go through everyday life and not adhere to injury and stuff that could have been prevented. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it's, it's interesting they say we're not here to preach Matt Pendola, but you know, I tell everybody I can, you know, when they ask me what I'm doing, I tell them what I do, I'm doing. And I say, man, you know, if you, if you really care, get in there. And it, once you start training to make yourself a stronger, better athlete in whatever it is you're doing, um, or just life, you just want to be, you know, you want to move around a little bit easier. It's, 
once you start seeing the results and it's been three years now and I just can't believe the shape I've gotten in in three years. And I thought I was in good shape before. And I don't mean just like, you know, I'm, you know, this isn't CrossFit, right? This is exercises that are designed for you in particular that you're doing that make you, and it's funny how you can do so few at reps or seconds of this and that. And at the end of the workout, you know, you've, you've had a workout, but it's not like, you know, the, the, the old philosophy of, you know, you got to drag yourself out of here or you're not doing the good thing. And that, and obviously we've learned over the years that it's bad for you to do that, you know, just doing random tech, random, uh, moving techniques that that hurt you or make you tired or injured that's not that's not what this kind of training is about this kind of training is about helping you so that when you go do the things that you love to do you're you're just a better athlete a stronger athlete because we're all athletes like you preach us he says it don't matter if you ever played sport in your life we're all athletes i agree with you 100 percent. it's like i'm like matt i'll train tomorrow with you i want to come in tomorrow and get my ass he's like nope you get to do this twice a week and I want you doing 80% of this once a week. And then I want you doing 40% of this twice a week. And he's just like, trust me, you need to rest. You need to do this. And then the next thing you know, I got a 44 inch box jump, 44 inches. I just box jump. Holy mackerel. I did 49. Like next week I'm gonna get 44. I got 44, no steps, two feet crouching down, springing up and landing 44 inches above me. I mean, above the ground. That's a long ways for me. That's amazing. 44 inches. And it's all because of all of these little um, disciplines that he teaches us and these little tiny exercises. Now the name's escaping me. I'm not a personal trainer, but the the little tiny muscle groups that we work in Matt's class is what's getting me to the point to where I can do that. And the other part of it is I get challenged in there because I see somebody like Gilbert and Les and these guys that are doing things, whether it's Les's age or Joey's uh, my age, but he's kicking my ass at something. I'm like... I need to get better at that. I want to, I want to at least compete on that. And then I beat something, you know, I get, I get a a record or something above Joey. He's got the same kind of mentality that we, and we push each other, but we're not doing things that go through the motion. We're not doing things to say, Oh man, I I just jumped 44 inches. I'm saying that because of being in there, I'm not going to make the Olympic team being a high jumper. That's not what I'm telling you that for. I'm saying that I'm happy where I'm at to where I can do that at 44, where I would say the majority of 44 year olds aren't doing that, aren't even trying to do that. Wouldn't even consider trying to do that. Not saying I'm better than them. I'm just saying that that's why I love going into mats is because I have the confidence to look at 44 inches and go, I got this. And that's a long ways for a white boy to jump up, in my opinion. I'm not saying, I don't even know if Larry Bird could ever jump that high. Guarantee Woody Harrelson couldn't and white man can't jump. But that's a long ways, Neil, 44 inches is because of what Matt teaches. He doesn't preach. Maybe he's got a little preaching in him, but he teaches and he shares. And it's so cool to be in there. You pay for what you get. It's not that expensive to live another 40 years. Yeah, that's, you know, that's it, man. It's longevity. And that, and that's why I'm going to continue. You know, I, I, I will stay in, I'll stay in that program until I can't do it anymore because, you know, that's, it's going to increase my longevity for sure. As far as, you know, the physical stuff that I like to do, I, I don't want to quit riding my mountain bike and I, I throw a disc, uh, you know, for in my disc golf sport, I throw farther than I, you know, the, the, technology is better in the plastic, but I still can throw the disc with the young guys. So, and, and I don't want that to change, you know, I, so I, so seeing the look on your face right now, knowing that you're going into 60, I want to end it like this. It's been awesome. I love you. I freaking think Krav Maga is badass. 
I love going to lunch with you. Are we going to go get something to eat real quick? Yes, you sir. got time? Um, I'm going to have a little bit of chicken on my salad probably. <laughs> I'll bring my own. Slaughtered some this morning. Farm-raised chickens. That's oh. why you don't hear them out here. <laughs> if you'd have been here yesterday, you'd have heard them out here. Um, do you get scared of dying? Does it start to enter your mind as you start to get into your 60s, 70s? I don't know where your mom and dad are still alive. My dad died at 54. A lot of people know that. Genetics. Um, we don't need to get into your genetics, but does the mind does it start to enter your mind more and more of the fear of that or, or not being here and being to experience this? Or do you have the confidence of like, that's why I'm doing this working out and this training and staying active and taking all those steps during the day to where I'm going to put myself in the best position. We all understand cancer could creep in and freaking knock us out in a heartbeat. God willing, it never happens. I hate for that to happen to anybody, but does it start to creep into your mindset or your psyche more as you get into your closer to your sixties as it was maybe when you were in your forties or your mid thirties? Yeah. That, you know, that's, uh, obviously when it's an interesting thing. I, I tell people when you hit 50, for some reason think that you get this shift in your mind, like, Oh man, I'm on that other side of, you know, I'm on the other side now. And you know, do I live another 50 years? And if I do, what's going to be the quality of my life? And, and, you know, go, going back to my diet, one of the things about my diet that, that I do like is that I do feel really good. I am 58. I don't feel like I'm 58. I do things that I, I could do when I was 28, you know, and that's supposed to be the peak of your athletic ability. Um, but as far as, um, you know, I don't, I, I've always tried to eat and the things I put in my body for the most part are things that help you continue to live a long, long life. And that's what I want to try to do because I, I do, I, I don't, I'm, I don't fear dying. Um, I would, I would, you know, I certainly, I, I know the chances of me getting some kind of a disease or something that ends my life quickly is, is very high because it happens to everybody all around us all the time. And you see people, you're like, oh my God, that guy did everything right. And look what happened. Well, you know, we, we've got a million things going on in our body every second of the day that have to fire correctly every single time or something could go sideways and, and it's over. So I, I don't worry too much about that kind of stuff, but the only thing I can do is control, you know, like this exercise thing, this eating thing I do. Um, that's the only thing I have control over. And, is, and, and having, you know, the other part of it is mental health, just having a good mindset. You know, I try to enjoy every day. I, I try to, I don't, I don't take anything too seriously. I don't want, I don't want to ruin my day with serious stuff. I want to have a happy day because it may be my last day. So that's kind of how I live my life. And I, and I hope that, you know, as I turn 60 and I just keep on chugging along and as long as I'm supposed to be here, I'll be here and I'll try to make the best of every day and, and, and try to be kind as many people as I can. And, and, you know, that's, that's what I do. Well said, Neil. That's badass. Exercise and be kind. And if somebody messes with you, <laughs> don't punish them, but blast them. Krav Maga, Neil Fincher. It's been it's awesome. We're gonna have him back on because there's a lot of stuff that we didn't even get into. Which you know, the ultimate and the disc throwing and the golf and everything that you brought. You also brought ultimate, I think, to UNR back in the day, if I remember right. We got to get into that because at one time, I I, I want to come play with you because I could meet my, my brothers and I. We could run down a frisbee. <laughs> I ain't kidding you, but like we got to do that. But 
Um, let's just end it by saying, man, I'm just all fired up now about like, I get motivated hearing that kind of shit, you know, and I want to be a sweeter person. I want to be a nicer person. I want to mature into that to where, you know, you get that part of your life to where you're like success, 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 success. I got to have success. I got to have success. And you're just like balls of the wall to it. And then all of a sudden you're like, man, you know, it's time to slow down a little bit. I want to start being a little bit more well-rounded. Life is awesome, man. You just, it's just so much shit going on out there and there's so many cool stories and that's why we do this. And that's why we're so proud of the podcast. We're so thankful and humbled by the response we've got to it as we continue to grow it. We're almost a year old right now. It's almost been one year exactly. I think next week is our one-year anniversary of This Life Ain't For Everybody. So that's a big deal. I think we're almost on our 80th episode, and we're going to do about 80 more on the calendar year of 2019. Got a lot of really, really cool guests coming, and I teased you about it a little bit before, and I'm going to keep teasing you about an announcement we got coming with the Outdoor Channel Sportsman's Channel World Fishing Network Outdoor Sportsman's Group with my outdoor TV, Mo TV, all of your outdoor hunting, fishing, conservation, outside, outdoors, mother nature, living on a lake, living in the woods, being in the mountains where you need to be to free your mind. It's therapeutic. We got a big announcement coming soon with Mo TV and the foul life and uh, some stuff that we're going to be doing there. North American Whitetail Championships 2019 brought to you by Bone Collector. Get signed up right now at nawtc.com nawtc.com on instagram it's nawtc champ nawtc champ um I believe it's N-A-W-T champ. So look them up, get involved, get signed up for the North American Whitetail Championships, 14 regions across America and Canada, all archery, all the time. $300 gets you entered for your chance to qualify and win $50,000 cash money. And it was also brought to you today by Elk Ridge Knives. Check them out at elkridgeevolution.com and you can see them in action in everything that we do here at The Foul Life. All of our social media channels, they truly are a special brand, a special product, and we're proud to have them as part of the family. And again, Mojo, thank you so much for all of your support of everything we do from the TV shows to the podcast to the social media to the live events. And I cannot wait for September to roll around to be down in Texas with you, Terry Demon and Mr. Skip Knowles from Wildfowl Magazine, Blue Wing Teal. I don't do it very often, but when I do, I do it big. And to do it big and to do it right, you got to do it with mojo because when those teal see a mojo spinning wing, it's over. It's almost like those spinning wings have Krav Maga instincts. It's over. We don't punish them. We just treat them ethically and then we eat them. So that's all I'm going to say. That's how I just tied Krav Maga into hunting is through a mojo. Thank you all so much for your support of this podcast. This life ain't for everybody. Go listen to more podcasts. If I could turn you on to a few, if you haven't heard of Joe Rogan, I'm sure you have. Get on his, get on Bill Burr's. There's a bunch of good ones out there. I listen to a few select ones that make me laugh, make me think. But whether you're into fitness, bike riding, fighting, hunting, fishing if it's out there finance investing whatever it is podcast is a cool way but don't forget that the one and only howard stern is the one that pretty much invented podcasting and um i don't want to take anything away from what that guy does we listen to him all the time whether you love him or hate him he's a badass so don't forget to find him on sirius xm channels 100 and 101 tom rashishin 
please hit that button for Leith Lofton and y'all get ready for Leith's new album. It's about to drop. You heard us teasing it. He's been in the studio in Nashville with Southern Ground. You know, Zach Brown studio put his new album out there producing it. Mr. Brandon Bell. It's going to be 11 songs, 11 to 13 songs. We don't know exactly, but it's going to be special working on the album cover art right now. Sorry to linger on. I'm excited after talking to my boy, Neil Fincher. We're going to go get a big ass salad at Pinocchio's. His without chicken, mine with chicken. Tom, hit that button. What you going to do when the money's all gone by Leith Lofton, a.k.a. Haas, written by Leith and our other buddy, Drake White. Y'all have a peaceful week. Thank you very much for listening. We out. I'd rather be poor living off in a hole than rich as hell without a soul. Life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone?